truth, there's a new king of centre court. Carlos Alcaraz of Spain. 7-6-6-1-3-6-6-4. He's beaten the best of all time. He's beaten a man who is virtually invincible on this court. And just with all the great finals, you see the champion being embraced and embracing the people who made it possible for him. The door into the players' box, Juan Carlos Ferreira, another world number one. Many coaches and many people have played their part in the development of this young man. Father, brothers, brother, uncles. His grandfather. All right, everyone. Welcome to Trips Tennis Talk, the amateur podcast about professional tennis. Thanks for finding the show. Thanks for downloading. I don't even know where to begin with this. What a day. What a match. Let's begin here. Carlos Alcaraz is your new Wimbledon champion. He has taken the trophy from Novak Djokovic in five thrilling sets, coming back from a set down to dethrone the four times defending champion, the guy that was going for a calendar year Grand Slam, the 23-time major winner, Carlos Alcaraz, is a special player. He is a revelation. And that is going to be the topic of the beginning of today's show. It's going to be a great podcast. I'm really looking forward to this one. We have a lot of stuff to go over. First, We're going to address the men's final here. Then I'll talk about the women's final from yesterday. And then a couple of uh, topics about uh, other subjects a little bit later on. But hope you enjoy the show today. There is something for everybody in here. And this podcast is also designed to be listened to over several days or several sittings because it's definitely going to be a long one. Not sure of the exact length yet, but no doubt it's going to be the longest episode so far in the history of the show. So let's move into our first topic, the big picture stats and the big picture feelings about the final. So let's talk about what this means for both players, what this Alcaraz-Wimbledon title means. For Alcaraz himself, he is now the uh, the U.S. Open and Wimbledon defending champions. He is the only player under 35 to be a multiple Grand Slam winner. 
there are a couple over 35. Those players would be Djokovic, Andy Murray, Rafa Nadal, and Stan Wawrinka. And add to that list, Carlos Alcaraz. That is a heck of a list for two reasons. One, the other names that he's next to. And two, the fact that from ages 18 to 35, he's the only one. That's a huge age span that Alcaraz has differentiated himself from already in terms of his achievements. And it's not like he's on the end of that age spectrum. He is. He's on the beginning end of it. He's at the start of that age spectrum. Just imagine if he continues on this trajectory what he could achieve statistically by the end of his career. In terms of age, he absolutely is a revelation. Djokovic won his first Grand Slam at 20. It took him a couple years. What would that have been? Three years to win the next one? So he would have been 23 when he won his second Djokovic. Alcaraz has won his second at age 20. And I believe, I'm not exactly sure on the timing, Djokovic's birthday is in May, so he would have been 20 and a half when he won the 2008 Australian Open. And Carlos Alcaraz just turned 20. So he is 20 and a month or two, and he's already won his second before Djokovic had won his first. Federer was pretty late in coming in. I don't have that in front of me. He turned 30 in 2011, so he didn't win his first major until 22, age 22. Obviously, in terms of age, Alcaraz would be comparable to Rafa. Rafa had three Grand Slams at about this age, his three French Opens, 18, 19, 20. And Carlos is uh, pretty close to that trajectory here with two Grand Slams at the age of 20, and two Grand Slams on two different surfaces. And we can move into discussing that now, about Carlos on grass. He hasn't really played on grass. Was Queens only his third or fourth career tournament? I forget the exact number, but it was something you could count on one hand. And Alcaraz won the Queens tournament, and then he wins this tournament. Out of nowhere, he's able to adapt, as Djokovic said, as we'll hear, his clay court game to the grass. And the homogenization of the surface probably contributes to that somewhat, but... It's still very difficult. When Borg did it, winning the French in Wimbledon, it was a big deal. When Nadal did it, winning the French in Wimbledon, it was a big deal. And now Alcaraz, he hasn't won Roland Garros yet, but he's won Wimbledon with a clay court style game. It's... I'm going to use this word a lot today, but 
it's a revelation. Um, what else for Alcaraz in the big picture? He is the world number one. This title confirms his world number one station. Emotionally, he knows that he can beat Djokovic over the course of five sets. And this is not absolute peak Djokovic, but it's not far off. This is not an example of you're playing a guy that's 50 years old or a guy that's well past his prime. Djokovic won the last two Grand Slams, and Alcaraz was able to seize the title from him today. In terms of the big titles won this year on the ATP, Alcaraz has three, Djokovic has two, Medvedev has two, and Rublev has one. Just to go through that, um, Alcaraz has won Indian Wells, Madrid, and Wimbledon. Djokovic has won the Australian Open and Roland Garros. Medvedev has won Miami and Rome. And Andre Rublev got the Monte Carlo victory. So Alcaraz has more than anybody three big titles this year. And when you see that stat put in front of you, when you see his name bolt to the top of that list, it really is a game changer. And it really is a, a paradigm shift in men's tennis this match. And I know it's really easy to be a prisoner of the moment. And I should also caveat this. It's only a couple of hours after the match. We're coming to you at 1.44 p.m. West Coast. And in London, that would make it 8 plus 1. That would make it 9.44 p.m. Sunday night. So we're just... Because the match ended at 6.52. So we're less than three hours from the match being over. And what I... What, what the tennis world thinks of this match has not fully crystallized yet. It will crystallize, and it will become part of history over the next several weeks. But for now, I'm going to do my best to try and give an objective view even if it is difficult, just coming off of the moment. And for Alcaraz, you know, he won it against Djokovic in his prime, or near his prime. And if Alcaraz eventually makes a run at that Grand Slam count, it's going to include a cross-section with Djokovic. Like, if in 10 years... Alcaraz has tied him or has passed him or is within a couple of him. Those head-to-head matchups matter. And we can say 10 or 15 years from now that if this match today had swung the other way, it's just, uh, my point is, this, this could be a huge pendulum turn in tennis history. Now, I understand it could go both ways. Djokovic could win the next five majors. Alcaraz could break both his legs tomorrow and never play tennis again. I understand those are the two extremes. But, gosh, in this moment, it sure feels like uh, 
It was an earthquake today in men's tennis. There was no doubt. And I'm, I, I'm definitely going to forget some good stats. I'm going to do my best to try and remember everything. <sighs> what else for the Alcaraz big picture side today? He's only uh, he's a Roland Garros title away from winning majors on all three surfaces. <sighs> it's uh, well, I guess let's go ahead and move on to the big picture for Djokovic now. Where this is still on topic one for Djokovic, he was right there, and we'll get into that when we t- when we do a deep dive into into the match. He only lost this match by two total points. And he played like crap, especially in the middle of the match. Let's talk about uh, Djokovic's performance first. First set, he was good. Middle of the match, Djokovic did not play that well. In the big points in the second set, he... Made some errors, and he got rattled. The third set, in particular, he played like crap. He was completely shaken. In the fourth and fifth sets, he got it back a little bit. He rescued himself from the low. But it was not like he was hitting any zeniths or apexes out there. Even in the fourth and fifth sets, when Djokovic was playing better... It was still a story of the match that Djokovic, pretty much in the second, third, fourth, and fifth sets, he was not playing at an A plus level. In the second, in the third, in the third set rather, he was playing maybe at a D or a C level. In the fourth and fifth sets, he was at a nice kind of B level, B minus maybe. But the way Alcaraz was playing, that was not uh, enough to get it done for Alcaraz's level. He took it up to the stratosphere in that fifth set. The last couple of games, he played very well. And I'm glad that he finished on his high for the match in terms of form. Because that means the narrative can be Alcaraz took the title instead of Djokovic lost it. So Alcaraz, in the end, absolutely deserved to win. His last service game was a thing of beauty. For Djokovic, what do we think the chances are that this is it? It always could be. Federer's last title was the 2018 Australian, and it certainly didn't feel like that at the time. How many more can Djokovic win? And this can go a couple of ways, right? In one extreme, he could never win again, and Alcaraz could continue his dominance of him. I shouldn't say that. Alcaraz can continue to beat him, to continue to beat him, and Djokovic loses the motivation and his results get worse and he fades away without winning ever again. Or does Djokovic take this and beat Alcaraz the next five times they play, a couple times in major finals, and does uh, this go down as a historical footnote only? And... Time will tell. Time will give us the answer for that. Djokovic is 36. This is definitely one that got away. 
he definitely should have won. He had it within himself to win today. Alcaraz had it within himself to lose today. And Djokovic basically said as much in his on-court interview after the match. Which is kind of an an interesting thing to say in the on-court interview. You know, in the the press conference, let alone in the on-court interview. But Djokovic definitely let one get away. He was emotional afterwards when he was addressing his family, which we'll hear in a moment. But it was a pretty crushing defeat for Djokovic, I think. And uh, he's he's got all the records. That's not r- really an issue right now. Like it's twenty three to two. Like the end of the Alcaraz story is not going to be written with Djokovic on the court. I think it was more of a case of. A kid got him, finally. No matter what the tally of the Grand Slam numbers is or are, it's tough when you're the alpha dog, and when you say you're the alpha dog, and then somebody comes along and beats you comprehensively, and you kind of realize that, he's been surpassed. Or at least he was surpassed for one day. And also, the the whiplash of what happened in, in Roland Garros just a month ago on Alcaraz's, you know, theoretically best surface, but now the only surface in which he's never won a Grand Slam. To go from Djokovic just takes his legs out of him and Alcaraz mentally goes away and he's weak and timid to to a reversal. Alcaraz took the moment and Djokovic... Djokovic's physical performance wasn't there, but his mental performance also wasn't there. He was the Zen master, and the Zen master was shaken from his post by this kid. And that's got to be a very unusual feeling about Djokovic. Djokovic has been enjoying his run as the sort of king of the block in the post-Roger, post Rafa era, and winning the last two Grand Slams and Wimbledon last year, he has uh, he has really enjoyed that because the tennis world has revolved around him. And as I've said many times, things change quickly in tennis. All of a sudden, here he is getting beat by a kid. And is this a paradigm shift or is it a blip on the radar? Uh, As I said a moment ago. Um, the match itself, big picture thoughts about that. It was a great match. It was unquestionably the match of the year. Nothing tennis produces the rest of 2023 is going to live up to this in terms of storylines, in terms of drama. Maybe something will be able to get it on the quality side. The quality was not at the level of 2008 Wimbledon or... 2012 Australia. It was pretty damn close, but it wasn't quite at the at that 11 out of 10 level. Um, watching it, it was a lot of fun. You with these matches that have this drama and that impact the sport so much in these Grand Slam finals. When you're a hardcore viewer like me, it's so much you get. You get absorbed into it. 
And then when it's over, it can be hard to shake it off and get right back to your other life because of the quality of it and because of how much that watching that, you know, sort of gives to you emotionally. And uh, I'm grateful that uh, tennis has uh, given me a lot of those finals over the years. Topic two, let's talk about the match in some detail. Let me get my book. All right. The umpire today was Fergus Murphy. Uh, But we'll just talk about him first. Why not? Hang on just a moment. Okay. So Fergus Murphy, Djokovic does not like him. He has a reputation for being persnickety and for being unsympathetic to players, kind of Carlos Ramos style. And it didn't end up mattering in the last few sets, but what was the deal here? Ah, yes, that's right. At 4-5 in the second set tiebreak, Fergus Murphy gave Djokovic a time violation. And he definitely earned it. Djokovic was definitely taking his time. But uh, Djokovic did not like that. That was the only one, though. Fergus Murphy did not call him again. There was no point penalty. And when Djokovic smashed his racket later on, Fergus gave him a code violation, as he should have. So, uh, Fergus Murphy inserted himself into that one point, but that was it. I don't think, uh, you know, that Fergus Murphy is not the reason why... Djokovic lost the second set. But anyway, getting into the match TikTok here. Um, July 16, 2023, Gentlemen's Singles Final started at 2.10 p.m. London time. Djokovic saved a break point in his opening service game and then went on to rampage to a 5-love lead, eventually closing out the set 6-1. At that point, Djokovic, or I'm sorry, center, uh, no, I'm sorry, Alcaraz had come out tight. He was definitely thinking about the moment. Djokovic was definitely more prepared to start, obviously. But just like the semifinal match against Sinner, Djokovic saved a break point in the opening service game, and then he was off to the races, never to be heard from again, basically. But right away in the second set, things definitely started to change. Even the small act of Alcaraz holding his first game of the second set to go up one love, in that moment, he already equaled his game total from the first set. And uh, then he breaks Djokovic to go up two love. And at that point, uh, Alcaraz's level never really dropped from then on, except at the end of the fourth set. But from the very beginning of the second set, the match was well and truly joined in retrospect. Um, Alcaraz did dump his serve when he was serving at 2-love. He hit a double fault to start that game. And uh, after some some several long games, Djokovic got it back to 2-all in that second set. And then we get into a long, drawn-out second set. 
I think it lasted an hour and 25 minutes. And the longer it went on, you absolutely could sense that it was like uh, the soul of the match. And by the end of the set, you know, by the end of the hour and 25 minutes, it, 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 it felt like that set was like the whole match. Um, games went with serve the rest of the set. But they were tight games. They were long games. And um, even going back to the first set. In the first set, let me see how many deuce games there were. One. Two. Two in the first set. And in the second set, the number of deuce games was this. One. Two. Three. Four in a row. Five a little later. Yeah. So of the 12 service games in the second set, five of them went deuce, including whatever I just said, four in a row. So the the, the, the match was um, thinly poised or finely poised at that point for sure. And there definitely was a sense that whoever won the second set was going to be in the driver's seat big time. Djokovic was serving second in this set, so he, you know, he had to hold his serve at five six to get into the tiebreak. He didn't have the free roll of the extra game. If he had been up six five, then people would have said Djokovic is guaranteed a tiebreak, and we all know about his tiebreak streak. And I haven't actually talked about that this much on the pod, but Djokovic has won, you know, coming into the match today, some insane number of tie breaks and grand slams. I think it was 15, 16, 17, something like that, since he'd lost one early in Australia to Enzo Quacode. And uh, uh, in the tie break, what's my note here? Djokovic drop shot unforced error into the net. That would have been 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 on the sixth point of the breaker. And that was to make it. Uh, that was to make it three all. So he made a. The, I, I have that down in my notes as a big moment. And um, Djokovic, I believe, had a set point in that set. Um, couldn't capitalize. Got to six all in the breaker. Got to seven six with serve, I believe. And then Alcaraz got that mini-break there to win that second set. It was massive, massive moment to level up the match 1-6, 7-6 at that point. And the Djokovic tie-break streak was over. Third set, Alcaraz rolled through it, six games to one. Um, just besides what I said earlier about Djokovic playing really poorly, I don't know if there's anything... Oh, there is something to say about this set. I forgot about this. Yeah. So, the 3-1 game, um, Djokovic was serving at 1-3, um, and he had to endure a 26- or 27-minute game, depending on who you ask. I think ESPN had it at 26 minutes and 50 seconds or something. We'll just round it up to 27. So Djokovic had a 27-minute service game 
which had many twists and turns, but with ended up, uh, but the game ended with him getting broken to go down the double break, and from that point, Djokovic tanked the rest of the set. Um, but yeah, the the centerpiece of that game definitely that uh, half hour game. In the third set total, let me count the deuce games for you. One, two, three, three. And given the set was basically only five games long, uh, you know, the games that mattered early in that third set, they were all deuce games, and, and including that uh, extended game. Uh, fourth set, you know, at this point, at this point, when Alcaraz went up two sets to one, I thought he was going to do it. I genuinely did. I know that you can't count Djokovic out and that he would look to win the next two sets, and he was perfectly capable of doing that, and he's done that before. And I knew that in the moment. But even so, when this was happening, you just felt like Alcaraz was on his way. I thought Alcaraz played a, a pretty weak fourth set. He was up on serve, one love, two one. That was really as close as he got in the fourth set to winning it in four. Um, uh, Djokovic ended up uh, breaking twice in that fourth set. Alcaraz kind of ran out of steam, um, and so you know now we're in the fifth. And at that point, you thought Djokovic was coming. But before we get to the fifth set, let's just uh, take a look at some set by set stats. And uh, I'm looking at him for the first time here. So backtrack to the first set, 6-1 Djokovic. He won pretty much every stat except for winners. That part on the website's completely green. Domination. Second set, let's see. Obviously Alcaraz would have the more stats there. And he was even more statistically dominant in the third set. Let's see if there was uh, serving trends here. First serve percentage, let's see. Uh, yeah. So in the first set, Djokovic's first serve percentage was 76. Second set, 60. Third set, 61. So it definitely dipped off. For Alcaraz's first serve percentage, first set, 65. Second set, 66. Third set, 63. So he was definitely consistent. Uh, second serve points one. This will tell a story. First set, Alcaraz, 14%. Second set, 67. Third set, 71. So, and obviously the second serve points one stat basically, basically tells you who's doing better off the ground, like I said a few days ago. So that was absolutely true. And uh, in the fourth set, uh... Djokovic got a couple couple breaks. That was more of a momentum sort of mental thing. That was kind of less about game at that point, I think. But yeah, then we get to the fifth set, and even given everything that happened at the start of the fifth set, you would have to give the advantage to Djokovic because of all of his history. Djokovic... Uh, Saved a breakpoint to hold. Then Alcaraz saved a breakpoint to hold. 
And that was really the match. After In the very next game, Alcaraz got the break, and then he rode it out the rest of the match. That's something, too. The decisive break came at uh, one all in the fifth set, and that was the only break of that set. Alcaraz <clears throat> served the next couple of games um, pretty much drama-free. He did not face a break point the rest of the time. So that's that's the uh, that's the uh, proof that Alcaraz wrestled the fifth set from Djokovic. Uh, Deuce games in the fifth set, one, two, two. It was the first two, the two games that decided the match early in that fifth set. Again, Djokovic uh, saving a break point and then squandering a break point. So, in the fifth set, Djokovic had his chances, just like he did uh, throughout the match. And the final game from Alcaraz serving it out was just sick. Go check that out on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook or whatever if you haven't seen it, because Alcaraz was awesome. Um, Looking at statistics for the whole match, let's take a look. Um, Aces double faults, plus minus, Alcaraz is plus two, Djokovic minus one. Djokovic only had two aces the whole match, and it was stuck on two for a while, so those two must have happened pretty early. First serves in, pretty even, 63-64. First serves one, Alcaraz plus 8%. For the match, Djokovic actually won more on the second serve, interesting. Maybe the fifth set got Alcaraz over the line with that first serve. Uh, break points, kind of interesting. Alcaraz was 5 for 19, which is uh, which is worse than Federer's 5 for 18 at, at one point in the 2009 Australian Open final. And Djokovic was 5 for 15. This was, this was a match with a lot of breaks and a lot of break points for Wimbledon in general, but especially for a final. Uh, 34 break points in the match. And, um, uh, so that's 34, right? 34 out of 334. So 10% of the match was a break point. That seems high to me. I'm not sure what the number would normally be, but that's a lot. Um, winners to errors, plus minus. Alcaraz, plus 21. Djokovic minus eight. That is a huge, huge difference. Winners, Alcaraz had 66. Djokovic had 32. More than double. That is massive difference. You need weapons to win Grand Slams. And Carlos Alcaraz, that kid has got weapons. Unforced errors. Alcaraz 45. Djokovic 40. So Djokovic, you know, had less errors, but... Uh, total winners to unforced, Alcaraz, what is that, 1, 111, right? And Djokovic, 72. So, littering up the stat sheet, Alcaraz was totally in control off the ground. That's a very strong statistical argument right there. And, and yet, total points won, 168 to 166. And Djokovic played bad, and he should have won. 
and he let his opponent dominate by that much off the ground, and he still almost won. This, this may be as Djokovic's Juan Martin Del Potro moment. I'm not saying that Alcaraz is going to go on to have the same career. He, he's already got more majors than Del Potro. But in the 2009 U.S. Open, uh, he out-hit Federer on that day. And uh, on this day, Alcaraz completely out-hit Djokovic. Kind of a sight to behold. But yeah, that is uh, the deep dive of the match. Topic three, on um, audio from the players. Okay, first, I want to play their on-court interviews. I think it's worthy to hear that. Um, and I've got that rigged up live here as I'm taping this. So here's uh, Djokovic on court afterwards. Novak, what an extraordinary final. You really left your heart and soul out here on this centre court for nearly five hours. It's never easy to speak after a loss, but please just give us your thoughts on this wonderful final. Well, uh, good afternoon to everyone. <laughs> Not so good for me, but uh, good for, for Carlos. Um, I have to start, obviously, with uh, praises to, to Carlos and, and to his team. Amazing. What a quality in the end of the match. To, when you had to serve it out, you, you came up with some big serves and big plays, so you deserve it. Absolutely. Congratulations. Amazing. Amazing. I thought I'll have trouble with you only on clay and maybe hardcore, but not on grass. But now, <laughs> well, it's a different story from this year, obviously. Congrats, amazing uh, way to adapt to the surface. Uh, you know, you played maybe one or once or twice uh, before this year's Wimbledon on grass, and amazing, just what you did in Queens. And congratulations to your team, Juanqui, everybody. Well done, guys. Enhorabuena. Uh, as for me, obviously, you know, you never, never like to lose uh, matches like this, but, uh, you know, uh, I guess when all the emotions are settled, uh, I have to still be very grateful because I won many, many uh, tight and close matches in the past here. Uh, to name a few, you know, 2019 against Roger in that finals where I was uh, match points down. You know, maybe I should have lost a couple of finals that I won, so I think uh, this is even Steven. <laughs> and of course, you won in Australia, you won at Roland Garros, here you are in yet another final here in Wimbledon. It's been a very good year, so you must be still very proud of what you've achieved so far. I will be tomorrow morning, probably, but uh, <laughs> today, not so much. Uh, obviously, tough one to swallow, you know, I mean, when you are so close. Um, but again, you know, these are the moments that we work for every single day to be able to play in the biggest stages and biggest 
courts, most important tournaments in the world, and uh, I've been blessed with so many incredible matches throughout my career, so this is just another one uh, in the history books for me, so I'm really, really grateful, even though, of course, I, I did not win today, but uh, I lost to a better player, and I have to congratulate him and move on stronger, hopefully. word for Goran and your family and your team up there. Look pretty stressful up there today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's nice to see my son <laughs> still there, still smiling, you know. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I love you. Thank you for supporting me, and uh, I'll give you a big hug, and we can all love each other. Thank you. <laughs> Novak Djokovic, ladies and gentlemen. All right, that was the runner-up, Novak Djokovic. And now... Here is the champion after a commercial. What is the real story? Three, two, one. Well, well, many, many congratulations, Carlos. I know you've dreamed about holding this trophy since you were a young boy. There were so many twists and turns, momentum shifts in the match. You worked so hard for it. How does it feel holding it right now? Well, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a dream come true for me. Uh, as I said uh, before, uh, of course, it's great to win, you know, but uh, even if I uh, will have lost, uh, you know, I would be uh, really proud of myself, you know, in this amazing run, you know, making uh, history in this beautiful uh, tournament, you know, playing a final against a legend of our sport. For me, uh, it's, it's incredible, you know, uh, as I said, it's a dream, a dream come true, be able to, you know, uh, play in these stages uh, it's it's amazing uh, for a boy you know 20 years old I didn't expect to to reach you know this uh, kind of situations really fast uh, I'm really really proud of my yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm really proud of myself I'm really proud of the, the team that I have the work we, we put every, every day uh, to be able uh, you know to uh, live this, this experience. Yes, absolutely. I just want you to talk us through that final game and what you put yourself through physically, emotionally, all the nerves you had to cope with trying to close out such an epic. Yeah, I mean, uh, after the first set, I, I thought uh, mm, Carlos increased the level uh, of, uh, you know, every, every, everyone, uh, you know, could be disappointed, you know, after uh, a final, uh, as, you know, I have to congratulate Noah, you know, it's uh, amazing to play against, against him. Uh, what can I say about, about him? It's uh, unbelievable that uh, you, are, you inspire me a lot. Uh, you know, I started uh, playing tennis, watching, watching you. Uh, I mean, <laughs> since, I, since I, I was born, you know, I, you... you <laughs> You, you, you already was winning tournaments. 
you know, uh, it's it's amazing. Probably you you are in a better good shape than than me. Uh, you say you just say that the 30, 36 is the new 26, and you you make you make that happen. Uh, you know, in, in real, but you know, it's uh, it's amazing. It, it certainly is. <laughs> And you always said you wanted to play a Wimbledon final, and of course you've played in front of the royal box, in front of royalty, and home royalty as well. King Philippe, the King of Spain, how special was that? Well, it's, uh, it's really, really special, you know. <laughs> it's special to play, uh, you know, I'm from uh, royalty, uh, you know, the Prince of Wales, uh, everyone. I'm really proud, you know, uh, that uh, you you are here supporting me. Uh, I uh, well, I played in front in front of you just twice, twice that I won. I hope you you are coming more. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's really really special, and I have to to thank to thank you for for coming and supporting. And I just have to mention, because Novak talked about how fast you've learned to play on this surface. You'd only played, this is your fourth event, and you've won Queens, now you've won Wimbledon. You seem to be developing a very strong relationship with grass. <laughs> yeah, I, I fall in love with, with grass right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's amazing. You know, I didn't expect you to play at this level, you know, in the really uh, short period, you know, as you said, I played just four tournaments on grass, uh, I, I won Queens, I, I won here, uh, you know, it's, as I say, it's a dream come true. I'm really, really happy with the work that the, we, uh, we are doing, uh, you know, coming, coming into the grass season, uh, and, you know, I think I, I learned really, really fast, and I'm really, really proud about You certainly should be. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, I don't know if you're aware, but when you win the championships, you become an honorary member of the club, the All England Club. Did you know that? You can come here any time yeah. you like. Yeah, I, I, know, I know that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's great, you know, to uh, being a member here, such a, you know, an iconic uh, club. Uh, it's very, very special for me. You know, I have to, um, you know, bring the... The cart, uh, yes, you know, the little badge yeah, yeah. as well. <laughs> I know, I know that uh, Royal Ferry was traveled, you know, to get in with uh, with the car, so it's. Uh, <laughs> Might have know, to take some tips off yeah, Roger. <laughs> yeah. No, it's. Uh, you could come yeah. and play croquet with him. Sorry. You could come and play croquet with Roger. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I will text him. <laughs> no, I mean, it's uh, really special to to being a, a member of uh, this amazing club, uh, really iconic, as I said, and you know, I I will come, uh, you know, out to the tournament for for sure. Well, well done again. Enjoy this moment. The 2023 champion, Carlos Alcaraz. Those were uh, two great on-court interviews there. A lot of the times the on-court sucks, just to be blunt. But those were two revealing interviews, I thought. Okay, let's take a look at the ATP rankings now. This is the live ranking. This is what the official ranking will be tomorrow. Number one, Carlos Alcaraz, ninety six seventy five. Number two, Novak Djokovic, eighty seven ninety five. So let's calculate that margin there. That would be a margin of eight hundred and eighty that Alcaraz is ahead by. 
I do not remember Alcaraz's results last year in the Canada and Cincinnati. Maybe I should go back and listen to my own podcast. But Djokovic didn't play them because he was banned because he was unvaccinated. So Djokovic has 4,000 points on the table this summer, um, including uh, you know any points that he earns in the next couple months are going to be points that he didn't have before. So the 880 gap is definitely surmountable. Way behind in third place, Daniil Medvedev, 65-20. So Djokovic at number two is ahead by a total of 22-75, and that's without playing. It's not going to get any closer than that, really. Um, you know, even if Med wins both of them, the 1,000-point events, he wouldn't get there. So, uh... Unless Medvedev plays some smaller tournaments, he's uh, going to be stuck at number three. Uh, Alcaraz and Djokovic are definitely in a strong position to be the top two seeds for all the upcoming events, including the United States Open. Number four, Casper Ruud, 5,005. Number five, Stefano Tsitsipas, 4,850. Number six, Holger Runa, 4,825. Number seven, Andre Rublev, 45-25. Number eight, Yannick Sinner, 39-75. Uh, number nine, Taylor Fritz, 33-10. Number 10, Francis Tiafo, 31-33. Let's look for some big movers. Denis Shapovalov up to number 23. Chris Eubanks up to a new career high of 31 Roman Safulin up to 43. He's up 49 spots by virtue of his quarterfinal run. All right. And nobody really lost that many spots because uh, nobody got points for Wimbledon last year. Looking at the live ATP race. Number one, Carlos Alcaraz, 67, or sorry, 66-75. Number two, Djokovic, 59-45. Three, Medvedev, 51-20. Four, Tsitsipas, 31-75. Five, Sinner, uh, 31-75, tied. Six, Runa, 30-25. Seven, Rublev, 29-65. Eight, Rude, 22-50. Those would be your eight ATP finalists if the season ended today. Number nine, Fritz, 20-85. Number ten, Hatchinoff. 1900. Karen Hatchinoff, a top 10 player for the season. How about that? After three Grand Slams. Alright, so next, here's what we're going to do next. Um, I'm, I've got the press conference audio for the Djokovic and Alcaraz press conferences. They uh, did that already. I, I taped that already. I have it as a separate clip. So I'm going to insert that clip into the podcast right here. And after that, we're going to come back and talk about the women's championship between Anz Jabor and Marketa Vondrosheba. But first up, here are the two men's finalists impressed today. Great moment again, uh, but 
You just kind of have to accept it. I would say tie break in a second of, to, to backhands that kind of let me down, to be honest. Uh, set point, I missed the backhand. He did play um, you know, uh, a backhand uh, that was quite long in the, in the court and it had a little bit uh, of a bad bounce, but you know, I should not, should not have missed that shot. And then on six hole, um, again, another backhand from middle of the court in the net, you know, just uh, two very poor backhands. And that's it, you know, the, 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 the match uh, shifted to his side, that it turned around. Uh, he he's just raised his level so much, you know, in the third, I, you know, I wasn't, wasn't myself for quite some time. I managed to uh, regroup and regain the, the momentum midway in the third set in the fourth and i felt that the momentum shifted to my side so that was my chance that was my opportunity and that, that break point was i think i played a really good point kind of set up uh, that that drive volley and <laughs> you know it was very very windy today so um the wind kind of um, yeah took it to an awkward place where i couldn't hit the smash i had to hit the drive volley kind of falling back and i saw him Peripherically uh, running to the opposite corner, and I wanted to kind of wrong foot him with that drive volley, and I missed. Yeah, and then then obviously made a break next game, which was enough to hold the serve all the way till the end. But yeah, so, some regrets I must say. I, I had my chances, and I could have I think closed out that second set tie break better. But uh, credit to him for for fighting and showing some incredible defensive skills and. Uh, passing shots that got him the break in the fifth and you know he, he was a deserved winner today no doubt Novak David Waldstein New York Times do you feel like this is the beginning of a big rivalry <laughs> I hope so I mean for, for, for my sake <laughs> you know he's going to be he's going to be on the tour for quite some time I mean I don't know how long <laughs> I'll be around but uh yeah I mean Let's see. You know, it's 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 been only three matches that we played against each other. Three three really close matches. Two already this year in the later stages of uh, of of Grand Slams. Um, yeah, I hope we get to play in the U.S. Open. Why not? You know, uh, I think it's it's good for the sport playing one and two in the world facing each other uh, in in almost a five set uh, five mat, five hours five set thriller. It's couldn't be better for our sport in general. So. Why not? So are you surprised by how quickly Carlos has adapted to clay, to hard court, and to grass, and he's beating you and winning trophies? To clay? No, I'm not surprised because he grew up on clay and his game is, you know, obviously suited and developed for clay and probably slower, slower uh, um, hard courts. But yeah, grass, I, I must say that he surprised me, he surprised everyone how quickly he adapted to, to grass this year because he hadn't, hasn't had too many wins on grass in the last two years uh, that he played um and and you know obviously him coming from clay and playing the way having the kind of a style that he has you know i think queens helped him a lot he he was close to lose that first match opening match in queens and then he just started to gain gain momentum more and more wins against really good players and Wimbledon courts are slower than Orangi courts or maybe Queen's courts. So it's, you know, it's more suitable for, I guess, uh, the baseliners like he is. 
But uh, I must say, you know, the the slices, the, the you know, kind of chipping returns and the, the net play, it's, it's very impressive. You know, I uh, didn't expect him to, to play so well uh, this year on grass, but he's proven that, you know, uh, he's the best player in the world, no doubt. I mean, he's, he's, playing, he's playing some fantastic tennis on different surfaces and he deserves to be where he is. But uh, if you had to pick one quality that you think is his greatest strength, what would it be? And is there anyone else you've played in the past or seen play to whom you would compare, Carlos? Well, I think people have been talking in the past uh, um, 12 months or so about uh, uh, his game being consisting of certain elements from Roger Ruff and myself. I would agree with that. I think he, he's got ba basically best of all three worlds. Uh, he's got uh, he's got this mental uh, mental resilience and really maturity for someone who is twenty year old twenty years old. It's it's quite impressive. He's got this you know Spanish bull mentality of uh, competitiveness and fighting spirit and incredible defense that uh, we've seen with Rafa over the years. And uh, and I think he's got uh, some some nice uh, sliding backhands that he's got maybe uh, he's got some similarities with with mine my backhands and he's he's just uh, yeah two-handed backhands and uh, defense and being able to adapt mine my backhands and he's he's just uh, yeah two-handed backhands and uh, defense and being able to adapt I think that has been my personal strength for for many years. And he has it too. So I haven't played a player like him ever, to be honest. You know, uh, Roger and Rafa have their own, obviously, strengths and weaknesses. But uh, uh, Carlos is, is a very complete player. Uh, amazing, uh, adapting capabilities that I think are a key for longevity and for a successful career on all surfaces. I know that. Just on um, the racket smash on the net, I just wonder, you spoke about a few regrets you had during the match. Do you regret that? And we don't often see that kind of reaction from you. But yeah. where, what did you feel in that moment? I mean, it was a frustration in the moment I answered to a colleague uh, two minutes ago about that. There's not much to say about that. Okay, thank you. I'm going to switch to Sergio. <coughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, welcome to the press conference for Carlos Alcaraz, Wimbledon champion. How does it feel, Carlos, to be the Wimbledon champion? Uh, well, it's great. <laughs> and, uh, it's, a, it's a dream come true for me. Uh, you know, being a Wimbledon champion, something that uh, I really wanted. Uh, and uh, honestly, I didn't expect to uh, to get it. You know, really soon. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's uh, time to to enjoy and you know to uh, see everything, all my feelings and. Yeah, it's, uh, as I say, it's a dream. Elena. 
Hi, Carlos. Ellen Christian Press Association. A lot of people have talked about a, a changing of the generations, like a changing of the guard. How important <coughs> was it for you to be kind of Novak at his best uh, on a stage like this? Well, uh, I did it for myself, not for the 10th generation, honestly. But, uh, you know, it, it was it was great, uh, you know, beating Novak at, at, at his best. Uh, in this stage, uh, you know, making history, uh, being the guy, you know, to be him after 10 years, uh, I'm beating on, on that court is amazing for me. Uh, and something that uh, is something that I will never forget, that's for sure. But uh, I said, it's great, I think, you know, for uh, the new generation as, as well to, uh, I think, to. Uh, see me beating beating him and uh, making making them you know uh, think that uh, they are uh, capable of you know to do it uh, as well. So it, it's great for me and I think for the young players as well. What, Carlos? Congratulations. What is it that you changed early in the second set or that changed for you because you were really struggling? for the first you know, 40 minutes of the match. And then what happened that allowed you to fight and get even and be playing on you know, an, even, an even court? Well, uh, it was tough first set, honestly. Uh, but, you know, I, I thought that they was playing great. It was uh, playing, playing a, a good level. I had chances, you know, to break his serve or uh, I was close to to break his serve, you know. At uh, I I couldn't take it, and that's uh, that's it's a, a problem, you know, when you uh, don't take the, the opportunities against uh, a legend like like Novak, uh, you 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 have to struggle with, uh, you know. But in the second set, I I knew that I was going to to have my chances. I had to be focused. I was uh, I had to. You know, to stay there and waiting for for my uh, my my chance to you know to be up or to to be close on on the on the score. Uh, and you know, after winning the second set, it was really good for me because if I would have lost that that set, probably I I couldn't leave the trophy. I probably could have lost uh, in three sets in strike sets. You know and. I would say that gave me a lot of confidence, a lot of uh, motivation, you know, to to still going and you know to think that uh, I'm able to to win Novak in in that stage. Carlos, uh, question: Going back to the French Open and the cramps that you suffered in that match, just the the feelings that you had after that semifinal. What steps did you take, if anything, to sort of ensure that you would be able to go, as you did today, five sets strong with Novak? And was there any sort of change in your approach, recovery, anything like that, to just make sure that you would remain on form? Sorry, say again, please. Just in, in, in terms of your recovery, to go five sets and to be going toe-to-toe -to -toe at Novak today, you know, I know you wanted to do that at Roland Garros. wasn't possible the way the day went. But what allowed you to do that today? Yeah, uh, well, as I said before, I I am totally different player, like uh, well, than French Open. I grew up a lot since that that moment. I learned a lot from that moment. You know, uh, as I said, 
uh, before the the final. Uh, I took lesson from that match. I did something different, you know. Uh, before before the match, I prepared di a little bit different mentally uh, before the the match, and you know I could deal with uh, the pressure, the nerves uh, better than I than I did in in French Open. You know, uh, obviously on, on grass is different than on clay, uh, but uh, you know I'm really happy to you know be able to to stay there. Uh, didn't get down. Didn't give up, uh, and I, I fought, you know, until until the last ball. Every ball, I I think we we made uh, great rallies, great points, uh, and uh, it was a uh, you know a long, a long match, a long set, and you know as uh, I think it was the, the the mental part that allowed me to uh, to stay there during the the five sets. Congratulations, Carlos. I wanted to ask you, before the final, you said that the, this was your big, the biggest moment of your life. And for, for Novak, it was just another match, possibly. I, I, want, I want to ask you, why was it the biggest moment in your life? You're just 20. There are going to be many, many Grand Slam finals. But why was this such an important moment for you? Well, right now, yeah, it's uh, the happiest moment of my life, that's for sure. Probably in, in five years, uh, would change. But right now, right now I'm 20. Uh, I didn't lift uh, too many uh, situations like this, so I'm gonna enjoy this this moment. But uh, you know, uh, making history that uh, I, I did today, uh, it's yeah the happiest moment of of my life, and I think uh, it's not gonna change for a long time. So uh, yeah, it's like beating Novak. Uh, winning a uh, Wimbledon uh, championship is something that I dream uh, about since I, since I started playing tennis. So uh, that's why it's the biggest moment of my life. Carlos, you said just then that you're going to enjoy this. What's the plan tonight? Any wild plans, parties planned? <laughs> well, I have the official dinner, <laughs> like every year. Uh, and then, I don't know. I'm going to spend time with my time, family, that's for sure. But uh, don't know where yet. Uh, Novak was asked to describe what he thinks your best qualities are. He said you've got a little bit of him, a little bit of Roger Federer, and a little bit of Rafael Nadal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess... I, I, was, I wanted to ask what your reaction is to that. I think you just kind of gave us a little bit, but also how would you describe yourself as a player? What do you think your best qualities are? Well, uh, it's crazy that Novak said that, honestly. But, you know, I consider myself a really complete uh, player. Uh, I think I have the, the thoughts, I have the, the, the strength physically, uh, strength mentally uh, enough, you know, to... Uh, and this uh these situations uh i don't know probably he's he's right uh but uh, i don't i, I don't want to uh, think about it uh, i i want to to think that uh, i'm uh, you know full carlos alcaraz <laughs> let's say but uh, probably i have uh, some uh great uh, ability from from every every player
What did you learn about yourself today? Uh, it's quite a good question. Uh, I don't know. I probably uh, know that I'm uh, really incapable of, you know, uh, doing the things that I did today. Uh, probably before uh, this this match, I I thought that uh, I mm, wasn't ready, you know, to to beat uh, Djokovic in five sets, an epic match like like this, or uh, you know, stay good physically or good mentally, you know, uh, about five hours against a legend. Probably that uh, I learned uh, today, uh, well, about myself today. Did you change something in the way you considered Novak Djokovic before this match? After Roland Garros semi-final, you said, of course, I was nervous because it was Novak, because it was him, just like if he was superior to you. Did you change something in that point today? Yeah, uh, I mean, um, before the ma the, this match, I, well, I thought that uh, I can beat Novak, that's obviously, but, uh, you know, uh, After this, this uh, epic match, let's say, uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I think different, you know, about Novak in the way that uh, probably in other tournaments, in other Grand Slams, I will remember this uh, this moment and I will think uh, that, well, I'm ready to, to play five sets against him. Uh, good rallies, good sets, uh, really long, long match and stay there uh, physically, mentally, and, uh, you know, in in tennis uh, in general. So uh, probably it changed my mind a bit uh, after this, this match. Hi, Carlos. Congratulations. Um, we saw you go up to your box to celebrate with your family. Your family obviously love tennis as much as you do. You've spoken about your dad. Um, can you just describe what that moment felt like to give them that experience of you becoming the Wimbledon champion? Because it was quite emotional to watch you. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, a big moment, not just for me, uh, but for my family, for all the people around me. It's really, really special moment. Uh, you know, uh, I still playing tennis things. Thanks, my dad. My dad, he's really huge fan of tennis. Uh, I mean, he uh, he was watching tennis, you know, before I was born. So it's uh, it's crazy. His uh, whole life, uh, it's about tennis, you know. And uh, I think for 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 them, watching his his kid uh, making history, lifting the trophy here in Wimbledon is. Uh, Something uh, incredible for for them and for for me to to have them there and giving giving them a, a big hug. You know, it's uh, something that uh, I will never forget. And I hope to to have a, a photo for uh, from that moment because I'm gonna I'm gonna keep for forever. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. ¿Qué tal, Carlos? Muy buenas. campeón de Wimbledon. Hoy en vez de uno te voy a pedir dos adjetivos. Uno, ¿qué se siente cuando... All right, everyone, so now let's turn our attention to the women's championship that was played yesterday. Marketa Vondrosheva getting her first Grand Slam victory, 6-4, 6-4 against Ons Jabur.
the one statistical thing that I didn't talk about in the clip that you're going to hear coming up is that Jabor was up 3-1 in both sets and then lost 4-6-4-6. Man, that is a killer. Coming up in just a few moments, I'm going to speak to one of my old friends, Luke, who I used to go to Florida State with. We both know each other through our music connections and our sports football connections, and we're going to have some football talk too. But we talked just after the match, about half an hour after the trophy ceremony yesterday, so I'm going to let my contemporary thoughts of yesterday speak for myself on the particulars of what happened between Vondrosheva and Jabor. But just want to reiterate, definitely gutted for Jabor. Hopefully she can get one one day, but I'm skeptical that she can, and Luke and myself get into that. I want to go over the WTA rankings real quick as a result of Vondrosheva's victory. Here's the new WTA top 10. Number one, Iga Sviantek, 93-15. Number two, Irina Sabalenka, 88-45. Number three, Elena Rybakina, 54-65. Number four, Jessica Pagula, 53-95. Number five, Caroline Garcia, 48-65. Number six, Ans Jabur, 48-47. Number seven, Coco Goff, 33-90. Number eight, Petra Kvitova, 33-41, up a place. Number nine, Maria Sakkari, 33-10, minus a spot. Number 10, Marketa Vondrosheva, up 32 spots. Now career high, top 10 in the world. Taking a look at some other big movers. Alina Svitolina is up 27 spots. I'm sorry, she's up 49 spots to number 27. But I got into some of this stuff already the other day. Let's take a look at the WTA race. Number one, Sabalenka, 64-55. Number two, Sviantek, 56-85. Number three, Rebekina, 48-91. Then a little ways back and forth, Jessica Pagula, 29-75. Right, right there, Marketa Vondrosheva, 29-36. Number six, Ans Jabor, 27.81. Number seven, Kvitova, 23.55. Number eight, Mukova, 21.50. So those are your eight best players in the world after three of the four Grand Slams. Coco Goff is ninth. Belinda Bencic is tenth. And Svitolina is 22nd in the race. All right, so our next couple of topics, we're going to talk about the WTA final with Luke, and we also give some out-of-date predictions about what happened with the men today. So let's see how right or how wrong we were. All right, here's my conversation with Luke McManus. All right, so, so Luke, who are we? How do we know each other? So... We went to Florida State together in the percussion studio, or, you know, we connected through that, yep. and um, we've kept in touch since with our sports teams. Uh, we are both Jackson, uh, Jacksonville Jaguar fans. Um, Move all, baby. Let's go. Yes, and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, um, <laughs> but... 
This might be the first time we've actually talked to each other live, face-to-face, since we were in FSU. So, Yeah, yeah, it's true, isn't it? Was that, six, seven years? Man, we're getting old. <laughs> so, it's a lot more than I wanted to count, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so getting into some topics here. Um, first, so just for the people listening, we're recording this about half an hour after... Marketa Vondrosheva won the Wimbledon women's singles title. So, topic number one, let's talk about that match. I think the defining... Well, actually, before I ask a specific question, what did you think of it, Luke? Did you get a chance to check it out? <clears throat> yeah, I uh, I watched it from the treadmill and the stationary bike, uh, which was fun. Um, but no, it was, it was... I think I told you leading up to it, like, the number of breaks on the serve jumped out to me is just like kind of a helter skelter match even though it was very straightforward at the end result that's that was a great point by you that i hadn't thought about that and i looked it up afterwards and it was 10 breaks and 20 games so that was a good call i think um the defining characteristic of the match has got to be the nerves of ans jabor here we'll get to the winner in just a second but um for Jabor, she made a lot of errors. Her serving percentage was really low. Let me look it up here. Jabor's first serve percentage was 48%. Anytime you're under 50% for the match, it's not very good. You want at least 10 points better than that. Afterwards, she was crying. Um, what did you think about Jabor's performance today? Yeah, and I think going to the serve, too, they commented on the telecast. I thought I noticed it live, too. She took a good bit off of the second serve, it seemed like. It was just kind of a, it sat there to be uh, sent back pretty easily. Um, to me, if I'm ever playing, you know, because I play a ton of tennis, but whenever I'm playing, like, if you need this point or you feel the stress, you're going to be very careful. And I guess it felt like, especially on the second serve, she was very careful to add your point about the nerves. Yeah, and for Vondrosheva, she played really well. I've watched her last couple matches this week, and as I've been telling people, she's serving well. She's got the big power sort of check serve that the check players have. Um, um, statistically, she won most of the stats today, um, and uh, she played great, didn't she? Yeah, I mean, my goodness. To be, I know there's reasons for it, injuries and whatnot, but still to be unseated and just look like an absolute mainstay on center court that was crazy that was impressive to watch it was one of the talking points that the content makers are going to be discussing on the podcasts and uh, television shows today is should the roof have been open or closed now again for the people listening it did not rain it was sunny during this match and they closed the roof because it was too windy and uh, Vondrosheva's game would definitely be hurt by the wind, and I would huh. I would think that Jabor's game, the sort of not quite as powerful game, would be easier to do in the wind. Um, and the the tournament has made some questionable roof decisions, uh, the last couple weeks. But uh, should the roof have been open or closed, Luke? <laughs> I so I, I used football as the analogy for this they intentionally put the super bowl in warm weather cities to get the best possible outcome with 
with the weather. I personally did not have a problem with them closing the roof. I thought you're giving the players as much of a neutral court as you can be. And I think you pointed out, like, if it had been open, there'd probably be questions about did it affect the outcome? Was right. the, would the winner yeah, the other way? Yeah, so I I think if we're going to put the Super Bowl in Miami every other year, <laughs> let's let's close the roof with the wind. Or in a dome, right? It was in Minnesota that one yeah. year. But even that, people had a huge problem with just getting to and from the game because <laughs> of the snow. So, like, I got I have no problem with the roof being closed personally. Um. Yes, we're, we're already bringing in the NFL comparisons here. There's going to be more <laughs> of that in a minute, believe me. Um. So Vondrosheva's got a major now. She's 24, just turned 24. She's going to be in the top 10. So over, under on additional majors, um, 0.5, over, under. Oh, over. I would say over. I'm going to go under. I'm going to really? say this is it. I, um, to be fair, I don't know exactly how old she is, so that maybe factors tw- in. She just turned 24. Oh, yeah, I'm going over for sure. Um and Jabor still doesn't have one over under zero point five. Will she get one? She's twenty eight. Ooh. Ooh, that one's that one for me is a little tougher. I'm gonna go under. I'm gonna say no. She doesn't. You think she she gets frozen out? Yep. Uh, I'll be nice. I'll go over. I think she gets one eventually. All right. And with tennis today, if you want to, you can play until age forty. So she can play for another five to seven years if she wants. So she'll have yeah. more chances. But um, she's uh, 0 for 3 in major finals so far. So at some point, that definitely gets in your head. That's true. That's fair. Um, so next, last one on this. Let's talk about the crowd. Sports crowds are partisan everywhere. But at Wimbledon, it's kind of interesting who they root for and who they don't. If you were listening today, every time Jabor won a point, you definitely knew about it. And uh, when Vondrosheva won, it was pretty quiet. When Djokovic was winning yesterday, it was pretty quiet. Did you notice all that? Yeah, which is interesting. Because, you know, a lot of times uh, in other sporting settings, even at Wimbledon, an underdog is going to kind of pull the crowd. But I guess maybe for Jabor, having been there and not won, maybe that kind of pulls at the heartstrings a little bit. But yeah, I was a little surprised that the underdog wild card wasn't getting a little more love from the crowd. <laughs> Vondrosheva was not exactly the most well-known player, and I've been kind of saying that for a couple days, but uh, maybe now she'll be a little more well-known. <clears throat> so just let's see if we have anything left on the match here. In terms of what happened in the match, Jabor got up to love quickly, and there was definitely a feeling of, you know, is this her day? Maybe this could be her day. Um, it was, t- but then from that point, she lost, you know, the set six four. So she lost six of the next eight games. And um, uh, Vondrosheva, she was up a set and a break, and she was serving at one love forty love, and it was kind of that was when people were starting to, you know kind of realized that it could be happening here. But uh, Jabor broke back, and it felt like maybe the comeback was on. What, what were you feeling at that moment? I Well, you, I mean, full disclosure. It. Yeah, if you remember yeah, that well, moment. Full, 
Um, yeah, maybe not that moment specifically, but throughout the match, full disclosure, I texted you ahead of time that I had I had Jabor winning pretty comfortably. So anytime it felt like the momentum swung her way, I was kind of on that train. Like, okay, this is it. She's she's gonna lock it down here, and it just never happened. Um, it happened. I, it I happened never, quickly, didn't it? It kind of spiraled. Yeah. Yeah, it did. I mean, it really did. What was it? Did they say like six games in a row at one point? For Vondrosova, it was five. Yeah, yeah. five. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, it did happen very quickly. Spiraling is probably a good word for it. I just, but even after that had happened, when she broke back in the second set, I kind of felt like, yeah, I mean, she, she, she could easily still lock this down. So that was my feeling. Clearly, I was wrong. <laughs> well, I was wrong, too. Most people had... Jabor winning it. I had Vondrosheva winning a set, but but not mm-hmm. two. So she proved everybody wrong today. Um, I I'm gonna say I still enjoyed the match. I mean six four six four. You could have a you could do a lot worse than that, and uh, tennis has done a lot worse than that. So yeah. I, I I suppose we'll take it. Fair enough. Yeah, there were some good shots hit too. I mean it wasn't it wasn't necessarily sloppy. It was just a little odd. Yeah. Um, Jabor had 25 winners, um, So, and there were only like 150 points or so played, so hmm. that's a good conversion rate. Yeah. Um, okay, w- one more sort of tennis topic here. State of the WTA. So we have a first-time major winner, an unexpected one. Um, uh, the WTA has had two first-time winners in a single season in majors in seven of the last eight years, including this <laughs> year with Sabalenka winning her first and um, Vondrosheva winning her first. So the WTA has been, you know, it's, it, it's definitely had parity. Do we think there's an NCAA tournament comparison here? Because <laughs> in recent years it feels like that event – the top teams have not won. Am I on to something? Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Um, the conventional wisdom, like with the NCAA tournament, is you take the upsets early and you take the chalk late. But kind of to your point, this year in particular, even that really didn't happen. The upsets just kept coming. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I, I clearly I, I can't for sure say that WTA finds himself in the same situation, but with the stats you laid out, could be a pretty compelling case. Maybe maybe lots of parity, lots of wealth to go around. I think it's pretty evenly split right now. I, th- I think you could argue it both ways. On one hand, Sviantek's got, I think it's four, four majors, which already puts her in, in a different category than most of these one-time wonders. On the other mm-hmm. hand, she's not as dominant as she was a year ago. So I think the next couple months, you know, if we revisit this after the U.S. Open... We'll have a clear answer to that question. Is it Sviantec's world, or are we still in the parody era? Hmm. Um, so let's shift to a slightly more general tennis and more general sports here. So is it, it's fair to say, I, I think you're definitely more of a casual fan than I am. Would you describe yourself as a casual tennis fan? Yeah, so I mean, it, people that listen to your podcast, I'm sure know you. You follow every single ATP, WTA, like <laughs> everything going on. 
Uh, I am not in that boat. I will definitely flip on the majors. Wimbledon hits it. I'm a teacher, so Wimbledon hits it a good time for me to catch a lot of it. Same. Um, yeah, right. So, yeah, casual is pretty fair. I would say I know more than maybe the average person on the street, but certainly not a a diehard lives on every match, and certainly not on every tournament the way you do. You're a high end casual. You're 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 <laughs> a, you're, you're a pretty diehard sports fan in general. I would say. Yes, and I would agree is part with that. Of that. Definitely, that's that's a fair assessment. So, so Wimbledon happens at a time where not much is going on in sports, and not much is going on at ESPN. So this week in particular, there's nothing going on because it was the baseball All Star break. So the four major sports they were not playing. Um, uh, Scott Van Pelt's on vacation. Um, the the. <laughs> The tennis was on ESPN main channel the whole way, so I don't know this for sure, but, you know, first take was either on vacation or it would have been shuttled to another channel. So, you know, tennis gets the the top billing here. So if you're a casual guy and it's 10 a.m. on a weekday this week and you flip it on expecting to see first take and you got the tennis, you know, are, are are you sticking around? I I tend to in this day and age I prefer live sports almost every time to the talk shows. I mean, I, yeah, I I cannot think of a single talk show, especially this time of the year, that I would prefer to a live game. I'm watching a lot of baseball when it's on, which I don't do during the football or basketball seasons. But um, but but yeah, I would so much rather see live competition. Yeah, and that's interesting. And um, sports fans, they like sports. And if tennis is the only sport that's there, I think there's a certain uh, percentage of people out there that are going to watch it, right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, have to. And I think the day part also factors into that. Um, You know, live sports at 8 a.m. doesn't happen too much, especially on ESPN. So, you know, maybe that day part can help You mentioned the NCAA tournament. I'm sorry. You mentioned the NCAA tournament earlier. That's one of the things that I love about it is it's wall-to-wall. Like, you get to noon, and it's just you don't have to think about the rest of your day. It's what you're going to do. So, yeah, for, for me, Wimbledon was kind of the same way. That wake up, get my son out of bed, and on goes the tennis. I, I totally agree with that. And part of the appeal of tennis is the, the marathon nature of the days, especially in the first week. Mm. Um. The 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 studio the talk show and studio anchors at ESPN have never known how to cover tennis. If you just watch <laughs> a Sports Center highlight, and if if you watch a Sports Center anchor do football highlights and do tennis highlights, it's not it's not even the same universe of competency. Yeah, I think you notice like you you absolutely hear them shift to teleprompter reading mode <laughs> when it's a tennis highlight versus the football. You know, they know how to anticipate, oh, this is going to be a big pass. This is going to be a touchdown, a turnover, whatever. Um, they clearly, I agree, like you hear them just go to, and then he hit it down the line. That's a <laughs> point. I, I absolutely agree. And just tennis highlights suck, you know, like, why mm-hmm. do we always have to show match point if that's not the most exciting point, right? Fair enough, yeah. Um, so, last tennis one here. So, we're taping this on Saturday. Um, it's going to come out tomorrow as part of my end of tournament show. 
So give me a Djokovic Alcaraz prediction. Ooh, wow. I, I've been kind of hyping Alcaraz. Some of my, uh, my friends that are watching as well. I, I think, I think it's almost his time, but I don't think he gets it tomorrow. I'm going to say it's in five, but I think Djokovic gets a late break in the fifth and wins it. Oh, that's good. Um, I'm, I always go contrarian on these things, and I'm kind of right a good percentage of the time. I'm going to go, I'm going to be the party pooper, Novak <laughs> Djokovic in three sets, three and out. Wow, three. I'm going to go with 6-4, um, 7-5, six, seven, seven, six. Dang, wow. I mean, good for you. You And there's a, he, fair enough, like we've texted back and forth over the years about all kinds of sports things and his contrarian does work. I've I've been frustrated by it and pleased by it both at the same time. But you'll probably end up being right. Like with some of my Jags takes, maybe I can't remember what they are. But <laughs> well, I so full disclosure, I am a Florida Gators fan. Even though I went to FSU, that's a whole long story. <laughs> but um, you're usually right about those, and those are the ones that bother me. We're in the Jags together, like good or bad. But yeah, when you're when you're contrarian about the Gators and you're right, that one gets me. <laughs> Uh, touchdown Chad Luke tough scenes <laughs> um, so let's, let's let's get into some of that now we'll have some fun here um, yeah let's do this let's do our football teams first so give me a give me a a, a Florida Gators season preview feel free to go as long <laughs> as you want oh boy you uh, you couldn't have asked this any other season like like any other season I could have at least been delusional enough to say oh ten wins is possible and I just don't think it is for for them this year uh, coach Billy Napier I think he's doing a good job you look at the recruiting rankings Florida's like third on most sites right now so his message is clicking um, but that's I mean opening up with defending Pac-12 champ Utah on the road week one probably chalk that up as a loss um you've got at lsu you've got fsu who's not as as you i mean pretty quickly that turned from a chalk it up as a w to probably looking at a loss right now um yeah i mean i think florida would be doing really really well to get eight wins that would probably involve a couple upsets um I think the roster looks good on the lines of scrimmage compared to where it's been, but I don't think there's anything dynamic at quarterback. Graham Mertz transferred from Wisconsin, and he is he's everything you want in a Wisconsin quarterback. He can hand the ball off really, really well. Um, so my take is eight wins would be pretty great for this year. Um, that would probably include like some wins over South Carolina, over uh, certainly not Georgia, but maybe you give LSU a t- tough game uh, maybe maybe you miraculously steal one from Utah again that that's what you're gonna have to do to get to eight um, one of those things so that's my take I think eight is is a rallying cry I think six is probably the most likely outcome um, anyone that says five or four I think you're being uh, wishful thinking a little bit um, against Florida that is so that's my take um, what do you have for the Florida Gators? I think the official Vegas over under is like six and a half, maybe maybe six. Oh, I, I haven't followed the Gators, but I'll I'll just say they'll make a bowl game. So I'm gonna go with six, at least six bowl at game. Six. Yes, and then after that we'll see. I would add that pretty universally, people cringe when they look at the schedule. 
Um, I, I should have it memorized off the top of my head better than I do, but I mean, like I said, at LSU, at Utah, Florida State, who's no longer a slouch, um, obviously Georgia, neutral side every year. I mean, that's four games that everyone just universally says that's a loss. So now you've got to split some games with South Carolina, with Missouri, Tennessee. Um, that's tough, man. The SEC is still no joke, and then FSU's got their act together. Yeah, I mean, they FSU, they lost three in a row in October to ranked opponents, and then they didn't lose again, and they finished, I think, 11th, 11th or 12th in the AP poll. Mm-hmm. So we're coming back, hopefully. <laughs> um, I mean, for FSU, isn't it pretty much like you circle Clemson, you circle LSU, and the rest of the games they should be favored in, right? Clemson might be possible in the next few years if they keep going down. Yes. Yeah, I, the that seems to be the trend. I mean, they were up so high that you can only really go down a little bit. But, but yeah, I mean, when you look at even when you look at recruiting rankings, FSU's right there with them. Even they're below Florida for crying out loud. So, yeah, I think I think FSU's window to, to win an ACC is starting to open. Yay! Hopefully, well, you and are too, you, right. You have the the non-division schedule this year, so they could lose to Clemson and still make the title game, unlike previous years. Right, that's true. Um, 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 uh, lost my train of thought. So we'll go. We'll, we'll go with this. Um, so, uh, f- uh, former Gator Anthony Richardson, he's with Indianapolis <laughs> now, right? So, yes, he how, how's he gonna do? How and how well, are the Jags going to do against him? I was about to say, well, for sure he's going to lose twice to the Jags. Just, just write that in already. <laughs> um, no, I. Gosh, this is a tough one because I hate the Colts. I love Anthony Richardson. I really like. I would like to see him do well, but unfortunately, that means probably that my team is having some trouble. So I don't want that. Um, Anthony Richardson is. I'm not saying anything new here but he's an unbelievable athlete i mean he has the best athletic numbers at the combine for any quarterback ever and he's even you know up there with some maybe mid-level wide receiver types like he's just a freak of an athlete at florida kind of i think we'll learn a lot as gator fans about what we have to look forward to because at florida he never looked i shouldn't say never very rarely did he consistently put all of that together so Right now, my feeling in the NFL is you're going to have some Sports Center top 10 plays where you just, how, how does anyone do what he just did? He's going to rope some balls 70 yards down the field, highlight touchdowns, and then they're going to lose 10, 11 games because he's also going to spike a ball five yards short of an out route. He's going to throw in a double coverage when he shouldn't. I mean, that, that's how he was for Florida. If he comes out and doesn't do that for Indy, maybe we have some problems in Gainesville that we didn't know we had. <laughs> Let's connect this real quick to a tennis question. Um, where do we think tennis players stand in terms of global athletes? What about a guy Ooh. like Djokovic? Is Djokovic, uh, Djokovic is one of the best athletes in the world, right? I I don't know why that should even be in doubt. I mean, one thing in addition to everything else that's obvious about Djokovic, he's out there by himself. Even, like, you look at, you know, Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, they still have supporting cast, and sure, they stand head and shoulders above, but 
anything that a tennis player in singles does, they have done on the court by themselves. Um, that's unique and should, I think, if anything, give them a little bit more credibility in the greatest athletes conversation. Unfortunately, that's not respected that much in, uh, uh, for American audiences. Right. Who, who do you think the best athlete in the NFL is right now? Playing currently? Yeah. Now, I mean, you can take this a million different ways. I think the obvious answer is Patrick Mahomes. Yep. But if we're talking about, you know, actual athletic tangibles, I mean, then you look at a guy like Jamar Chase or Justin Jefferson, Saquon Barkley. Um, but if we're talking, you know, the typical results, most expected of them and they perform, Patrick Mahomes, unfortunately, is the answer. Yep. It'll be Trevor Lawrence soon, though. Get, don't get it twisted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, let's go to the Jags now. Um, so, so Wimbledon is in London, obviously pop quiz, Luke. So the Jags have had London games. So how, and London is ahead. How many hours are they ahead of you? Do you know? Oh gosh. Isn't it like five or so? It's five. Very good. Got it. Let's go. And, um, it doesn't seem like there's momentum to move the team to London anymore because there was for a while, but that's kind of died down. What What's your take on that? Oh, Shad Khan, the Jaguars owner, is he's many things, but he's not stupid. Like, he has sunk millions, if not billions of dollars into the Jacksonville area. He's not going anywhere. He They did, I'm sure, as you know, like they've expanded London. They're playing two games there this year. Only one of them counts as a home game, which is good. But so, yeah, I think you're right, though, in the national media, even that was kind of tongue in cheek. That was the joke to make whenever the Jags lost. Oh, they're they're headed to the London Jaguars, take another loss. And I think that talk, like you said, is pretty much gone. The money you follow the money and the money is going to Jacksonville right now. Do you have your Peacock subscription ready, Luke? Because, you know, (laughs) um, just for the people listening, um, there's going to be an. NFL playoff game exclusively on Peacock this year, and Luke, you just know it's going to be like the Jags against the Colts or whatever. You know what, though? There is one way that the Jaguars can avoid that, and that is to be the number one seed. If they can do that, <laughs> then you avoid Peacock. But no, I do. I'm a big fan of the show The Office, so I had to get Peacock just for that. So we're good either way, but I think the Jags should avoid it at all costs. And there is one other way to avoid it. If there's like a crappy like Cardinals, uh, <laughs> like like um, uh, Chargers game, that might be on there. Gosh, what we I think we did this a while back. What would it? What would be the scenario? Like, what matchup would it have to exist to get us out of it? Well, you know, maybe it could go the other way because maybe they want to put a good game on there to make you buy it. If and if they put like the, the Cardinals on there, maybe people will be like, "I'm good." That's a good point too. Yeah, I mean, Jaguars. Gosh, Jaguars <laughs> Bengals. Let's say like both smaller markets, but even the Bengals have some stuff. I I can't imagine. Yeah, what would what would be the scenario uh, to avoid it? I, that's tricky. Maybe put maybe what's an NFC game that could be on there? That is probably the play, isn't it? There's not much quarterback star power there. Yeah. So I mean, what if what if the Bears Cowboys? <laughs> oh, so we go like Cowboys against the lower level. So you have the draw of Dallas, but then only one sided. That that yeah. could be it. Dallas against Chicago or Detroit or somebody. Yeah. 
Um, when when will the Jags host a Super Bowl again? It's time to get out of the doghouse. <laughs> yeah, well, have you seen the renderings of this multi-million, multi-hundred million renovation they're going to do? Yeah. No, I haven't, I mean, but I was going to say, like, Mr. Commissioner, look at my new stadium. It's gonna, It's nice. Yeah, so I'm an absolute jaguar nerd right now because they're actually doing well so it makes it fun to cover and if your team's doing well the nfl does a really good job of giving you year-round content so i followed everything about this and the team president made it he he said it outright we are gunning to host the nfl draft which i love so i think you have to do that first if memory serves they've run they've got that one booked out to like at least 27 or 28 so maybe the Jaguars slot in 29-30, somewhere in there. Gosh, I mean, you probably can't host a Super Bowl until 33 at best. <laughs> That's my guess. Anyway. We will see. Um, we, um, um, we've got under 10 minutes left here, so we'll pick up the pace here. Um, Sounds good. Is the co- so the cocktail party is staying, right? It's staying for another year or two officially. Georgia has done everything they could to get out of it. Um, I don't think it'll stay long term. Here's a genuine question. What's going on at Georgia right now? Like, there's, like, culture issues. <laughs> do you know anything about that? Because I do not. Yeah, so it's it's like what happens to every – FSU had it. Florida had it. Every time your team is good, you get journalists that, like, just latch onto it. So now they're going to be able to find – anything that goes wrong it, it is a lot of mostly yeah it's a lot of mostly lower level kind of stuff but it, it is a lot there's a lot of court cases and police reports the biggest one seems to be like street racing they they keep having this issue even after someone died tragically like yeah that seems to be the big one that kind of has some teeth to it the other stuff it seems to be a little more conjecture george is vehemently denying it whatever but the street racing ones are pretty open and shut. Like that's happening and continues to happen. Um, and if Georgia's in a, in a unique position because nobody's won three in a row, I think ever in the modern era. So if they I'm sorry, did, I just I just threw up in my mouth a little bit <laughs> saying that. that. That hurts. Um. So, you know, maybe the statistics are against them, but maybe they'll uh, break the statistic because they're so good. Ugh, they're stacked. How many more championships over under additional Nick Saban championships? Is he going to win another Ooh. one? Man, that's tough. I guess when the playoff expands, he if he sticks around long enough, he'll have another path. I'm going to say, is the over under like 0.5? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to say over. I think they get at least one more. What he's, about 1.5? Two more? I think, I think, no, I think one. I think he's going to get one more. That's kind of interesting because that means his time is coming to an end. He's old, man. He's what is he like seventy two? Something like that. Yeah. Belichick's gonna coach till he's eighty five. So, <laughs> and I mean, we we have an eighty year old president, and we have Harrison Ford uh, headlining a oh, major man. Hollywood movie at the same age in his eighties. Gosh, what a time to be alive. No, no, don't say that. That's triggering for me. Like Georgia is oh. for you. <laughs> I honestly, I don't even make that connection until you said that. But now, yep, Georgia's tech field yep. goal. Chris Eubanks, man, how about that? I loved watching him. So you mentioned tennis purists earlier. Um, 
I so I, I little things like the ball hits the net and you win the point. You have to apologize. I'm just like, no, I am so thrilled that that ball hit the net and you didn't get it back over. Like, I am not apologizing. It tickled me to death in, I, I want to say the quarterfinals maybe, where he, he had a big point like that. He, he put the hand up, but he turned around and was like grinning ear to ear. That, that sold me on Eubanks. He's going to be fun to watch. He definitely had the most crossover appeal to the casuals, especially in America. Mm. Um, yeah. And here's a stat for you. I believe, he, or I know this for a fact, he hit the most winners of anybody in Wimbledon history. I think it was like 317 or something, or 217, some crazy wow. number. And, you know, you know, he played, you know, obviously you win, if you win the title, you play seven matches. He only played five, and, you know, more than Federer ever did, mm-hmm. more than Djokovic ever did in seven matches. Interesting, huh? That's unbelievable. It's kind of an all-or-nothing style of play, I guess. Yeah, and he did something very unusual. In tennis, it's honestly pretty unusual for people to back up early-round upsets. And, and you know, he, he comes in, you know, ranked lower, and he beats Cam Norrie, a top-12 seed, in the second round, and he kept winning after that. So that was fun. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, even, you know, as we discussed, sort of a casual fan, but after I, I want to say maybe the round of 16, I happened to see his match was on, and then from that point on, I, it was it was uh, appointment television for me. I had to see whatever he had next. Absolutely. It was a fun time, and it could be a one-off, because it's just, it's just hard to do that, you know, mm. time and time again, but hopefully he can uh, at least win a couple matches at the U.S. Open. Do yeah, a, get the crowd behind him. That would be that would be nice. Yes, it would. Doing a podcast is kind of like being a teacher, because we're both we're both teachers, and uh, we're both going to continue to be that public school music teachers. Um, you have to learn how to speak extemporaneously and sound like you know what you're doing. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> how is it? Um, How's the Florida music ed scene these days, Luke? That's a really interesting question, yeah. Uh, Florida, I, I won't get into all of that, but obviously Florida education has, has not been a, uh, what's, I'll say it the, the positive way, it has been in the news quite yes. a bit. Um, I will say like the music side of it, it's, it's pretty good, all things considered. Our member, our component organizations, Florida Bandmasters, uh, Florida Music Educators Association are all very strong, relatively speaking, um, you know, and, and kids still like music, even in heavily athletic areas like where I teach. There's still a ton of kids that like music, so I I enjoy it. I think it's a good time. Certainly there's struggles. Um, I'm sure friends in Hillsborough County would say they're struggling in some ways, but as one example. But uh, no, I like it. I think it's a strong music ed scene, um, and I'm quite content with it. It's a big... Uh, moment for me. Big life change coming. Teach at the beach, Oregon coast. It's going to be <laughs> lots of fun. That is exciting, man. I, I don't think I've officially congratulated you. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and uh, we'll have one grade of overlap since I'm going to be at a K through six mm. school. So we'll both teach sixth grade, right? Oh, heaven help us all. <laughs> Sixth uh, grade, man. What, I, if, what a time to be alive. Being a sixth grader is a time to be alive. <laughs> yes, it is. If you know, you know. 
Yes. Um, okay, we got two and a half minutes. Okay, let's keep going. Um, so, let's see. Sitting in the back of uh, symphonic band rehearsals. Good times, <laughs> yes? <laughs> yes, good times indeed. Uh, lots of SpongeBob, some sports. Yes. Uh, lots of tacit, for sure. Just waiting on that one movement you get to play on. All good times. I think, I mean, we definitely gave Dunnigan a hard time, but, you know, I think with time, my view of him is slightly more favorable than it was then. <laughs> he He's a really good guy. Living in the Tallahassee area, we, every once in a while, we still brush shoulders. And uh, he... he very nice, all kinds of stuff. He invited our uh, students to come out and listen to a concert he was conducting for free, which I thought was really cool. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, we, I have to say, though, you say we gave him a hard time. The percussionists that I've now taught in middle school, like, we were saints compared to that. <laughs> well, you know, college <laughs> level and all that sort of thing. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, you know, good scenes, you know, th- they ask you to change the mallet, and you do the same mallet, and they're like... Yep, that's a good change. <laughs> <laughs> Hit it harder. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think uh, now would be a good time to start to wrap this up. Um, all right. So uh, thank you, Luke, for joining me today. I appreciated it. It was a lot of fun. Ten seconds. How many um, Jags playoff result? Jaguars. Oh, man. Gosh. J- uh. I'm going to do it. Jaguars lose in the Super Bowl. (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you, Luke. Number one seed. You got it. Thanks for having me on. All right. That was my conversation with Luke. I really enjoyed that, and I enjoyed the football talk as well. And I hope that Luke is able to come on the podcast again someday. Again, speaking on Sunday now. Thank you, Luke. All right. Now... Let's hear from the two women's finalists. First up, the runner-up, Anz Jabor, followed by the champion, Marketa Vondrosheva. Anz Jabor, please raise your hand, state your name and organization when asking your question. Um, Anz, we know this is really hard for you. Um, Just give us your initial, just quick thoughts on, on the match. Uh, yeah, very tough match. Uh, I think Marqueta played the right match to win this final. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm going to learn from it and hopefully come back stronger. Um, the Princess of Wales uh, spoke to you afterwards and I saw that she gave you a hug as well. And um, what did she say and, and what does that mean? Um... Same thing after last year, uh, to encourage me and uh, to be strong, to to come back and uh, uh, win a Grand Slam, win a Wimbledon. Obviously, she she was very nice, uh, and uh, she didn't know if she wants to give me a hug or not. So I, I told her, you know, hugs are always welcome with me. So that was a very nice moment, and she's she's always nice to me. Were you consulted at all about the closure of the roof and do you think it had any impact on the match because she's been playing pretty well indoors this week? Uh, I I honestly didn't focus much on on that, but uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe it helped her today to to play good and put more ball in. Uh, 
Uh, I don't know if the roof was open would have been a different story maybe for both of us. Uh, but yeah, it is what it is. It happened. So I'm, I'm very happy for her that she, she won her first Grand Slam. I know she's a player that has been very injured like uh, a lot of times. So I wish her all the best and hopefully she can win more on Grand Slams. Onza, hello. I, I believe Kim Kleisters, Chris Ever, and Simona Halep all lost their first three Grand Slam finals. And obviously, Four, actually, Kim, Kim was Kim just telling me. <laughs> <laughs> we were crying uh, together at the locker room. <laughs> how, how much inspiration do you take from the fact that great players have been in the position you are now? And, and I wonder, for, for someone like Kim to come and take time with you like that must mean a lot as well. I love Kim so much. She's... Uh, a great uh, inspiration for me. I uh, I grew up watching her a bit, and uh, we the fact that she takes the time to give me advice and to really hug me and, and uh, always be there for me. I think it's uh, priceless. And uh, yeah, she was telling me all the time that she lost four. I think that's why I know the information. Otherwise, it would be tough. But yeah, I think uh, that's the positive out of it. Uh, you could not force things. It wasn't meant to be. It wasn't meant to be. Hi, Hans. Uh, what, were you, what were you feeling in the minutes before the match as you were walking towards the court? How, what was what was going through your mind at that point? Uh, honestly, I, I felt a lot of pressure, uh, feeling a lot of stress. But uh, like every final, like every uh, match I played, uh, I was telling myself it's okay, it's normal. I honestly did nothing wrong. I did everything that I, I could. Uh, but yeah, I think things take time with me. Uh, it's, uh, again, I said it wasn't meant to be this time. Uh, hopefully I will be like the others that uh, failed a couple of times to, to do it and uh, will come after. What do you do when you're on the court to try and fight through that, the stress and the nerves? Uh, a lot of breathing, uh, a lot of uh, positive talks. Uh, I try to, to tell myself that nothing is over. It's going to be, uh, it's going it's gonna to get better, maybe. I've been used to uh, losing the first set, you know, in this uh, last few matches. So I, I had hope that maybe... It will be better in the next uh, few games, but uh, obviously not. So uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll keep doing what I'm doing. We'll keep learning for sure, because I think that's uh, the key for me. Hi, Anz. Uh, well thought. Uh, first of all, when, when you said Marquetta played the right match today, what did you mean by that? And then I wanted to ask, we saw that you had to change your warm-up clothes after you came out in all black. Was that just other things on your mind this morning? <clears throat> Oh no! I completely forgot the white rules. You know, when you when you go into a, a match court, uh, you just dress up as you know uh, normal clothes. You know, and uh, for me, I completely forgot that today I was warming up on center court that it has to be all white. But yeah, I I don't know. I just uh, it was a <laughs> honest mistake. Uh, I think Marqueta just. Uh, put the ball in, uh, slices a lot. I, I believe that uh, it, it was completely different match from the last three that I had. So maybe adapting to her rhythm was very difficult for me, plus the pressure and the stress of the final. Uh, uh, I didn't think she made a lot of mistakes. I thought she served good. Uh, and uh, I think she she played maybe a perfect final for herself. 
Um, you said that it's a new you playing at this year's Wimbledon, um, but you have also mentioned that you felt pressure and stress. Um, so how, how are you going to cope with that and how are you going to cope with the expectations that continue to grow from your fans? Uh, the same thing that I've been doing the last few years, uh, I've been having uh, you know more pressure. The more uh, good results that I do, the more pressure I feel. But it is uh, it is what it is, you know. If, uh, like I said, I cannot force anything right now. It wasn't meant to be. It wasn't uh, uh, definitely uh, this match, uh, last year's match, the final of U.S. Open will teach me how to to win these finals, and uh, will definitely keep learning, keep being positive. And I think that's the thing that will will keep me going. Because otherwise, if I'm gonna uh, be depressed about it, it's not gonna help much. So I'll try to stay positive. Ion's unlucky today. You said on court that you felt this was the most painful loss of your career. I know it's difficult, but can you put into words kind of why it hurts more than the others? Because I already lost two finals, and this is the third one. Uh, I don't know. I felt I was doing everything right. Uh, Again, with the, the same thing that happened last year, but uh, uh, it's it's painful because you feel so close to achieving something that you want and are actually uh, back to the square one. But uh, again, just uh, trying to get rid of these negative thoughts and, and could, uh, continue being positive. Hi, Ons. Um, you said Marquetta played the right match today. Does that mean you feel you played the wrong match? Or was it execution? Uh, I did play good. I didn't think I played good today. Uh, so many things that I should have maybe done. Uh, this not serving well did not help. But also uh, Marquetta returned every ball. You know, even if I did a good serve, she was she was there, and that didn't help my serve much. Uh, my backhand wasn't wasn't here today. Uh, Again, I think playing uh, two different players uh, the last few matches did not help too. So, yeah, I I don't think I played good as well, but that doesn't take away the match that Marqueta did. Despite the loss, you've now been to three of the last five major finals. Other players can't make that claim. What do you think your position is right now in the game? Uh, yeah, again, that's a positive thing that maybe I should focus on. Uh, along being a side of the players that didn't make uh, the Grand Slam, uh, the first three three finals, maybe. Uh, I think, hopefully, I, I will be able to take the confidence out of it and uh, consider myself as a consistent player. Uh, take this experience as, as good ones, but not bad ones, to continue and improve my game. Uh, uh, be the player that uh, I want to be but I know this thing uh, maybe with me will take years uh, and I will go for it will put the enough work for it and uh, uh, for me my, my goal is, is to be really a good consistent player and uh, unlock whatever it's going to come uh, learn from this match for sure and hopefully uh, I want to be you know one of the you know, players that could win Grand Slams, not just one. Take two more English. Yeah. Uh, this is yeah. off from the BBC World Service. Uh, you were advancing a 3-1 in both sets. Do you remember we were changing something at this time, at this moment, or she was changing something? 
Uh, I think it's related to the fact that I didn't serve really well. You know, I uh, I was able to to break both times, but uh, very difficult to. Uh, I didn't have the feeling that I was controlling my serve. I was uh, uh, maybe troubling her uh, a little bit, so that's why it was very difficult for me to win to win that serve game. And uh, yeah, I, I wish I uh, I was able to hold, uh, especially in the first set. You know, maybe it could have been a, a different match. Uh, on, they were saying on TV that you changed your lock screen to your niece. Yeah, yeah, my niece and nephew. <laughs> uh, was there a reason you came from the trophy to your family? Uh, I don't know. The trophy didn't work last year, so I thought uh, maybe uh, I always put my niece uh, photo and uh, the nephew is a new member of the family, so I needed to add him too. I just uh, I love them so much and they bring so much joy to me, uh, and I wish. Uh, uh, they give me a lot of love, so uh, seeing them every day on the screen uh, makes me happy. Marketa, how's it feel, Wimbledon champion? Uh, I think everybody's just, you know, everything is singing in, and uh, it's unbelievable. You know, it was it was a very tough match, and I was, you know, so nervous before, so. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just so grateful and proud of myself. Hi, Marketa Davide from Gazzetta in Italy. Congratulations for the win and for becoming a Grand Slam champion. Uh, when you finish the match, what, what goes through your mind? Uh, I'm in relief because <laughs> uh, when I was, you know, 40, 40 love up, it was, uh, I almost couldn't breathe, you know, it's just like everything, you know, is everything is on you and uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I'm just very happy that, you know, I stayed in my head and I just, you know, kept it together and uh, it was really tough in some moments, but uh, I think, you know, it's, it was just a, you know, great match. We had some great rallies and uh, she's an amazing player. She's an amazing person. So that was the tough part also, you know, so we, we know each other very well. So uh, I'm just, you know, very happy that I kept fighting in the, in the important moments. Yeah. Hi, Marketa. Tom Hopkinson from the Sunday Mirror. Um, I thought you said that you planned to get a, a new tattoo tomorrow and that Jan was going to be getting one as well. Have you had time to think about what that might be and, as importantly, what his might be as well? Yeah. Uh, I think I'll, I'll choose for him, you know, but uh, maybe we'll get the same one. You know, we talked before the tournament and he said, yeah, so maybe if, if you win a Grand Slam, then, then I'll do it, you know, and then this is happening. So I hope he's not going to, you know, back, back. And uh, I'm just, I think I'm just going to, you know, made him do it. So uh, we'll see, but uh, I hope we can, we can make it happen here. Marketa, <laughs> Martina Navratilova said before the final that you should hope for the roof to be closed. It obviously was closed. <laughs> Um, when did you find out it was going to be closed and how did that go about? And, and presumably you were quite glad that it was closed. Uh, yeah, so I played a couple of matches under the roof. You know, we played with Jessica the the end of the match and then with Elena was the same thing. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's better for me. And uh, uh, I think they told us like around 10 and I had a warm up at 11, but I just, I just said, you know, let's go outside. It was very windy, you know, so it was a bit different. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to eat, you know, get everything done. So I just, I, I just want to, you know, stick to the plan. And uh, we went, you know, to hit at 11. And uh, I was really happy they closed the roof because uh, it's, it's very different in, a, in the windy weather. I would. 
Could you explain a little more about how you think it helps you to be in a, that closed environment and without any wind? And also, I also just wanted to ask you, what to you is the best part of winning this championship? Uh, I mean, the roof can help you with surf. You know, you don't have to focus on the wind so much. And uh, I feel like everything's the same, you know, on every on every side. So I think you just have to focus, you know, on, on the game, not not on the wind and uh, not even on the sun, you know. So uh, I think that's, that's a good thing. And I'm used to playing indoors, you know, we, we practice in Prague, you know, in, in winter indoors. So uh, I always play good indoors. So I was like, yeah, maybe that's going to help me. And uh, yeah, I mean, winning, it's, it's amazing feeling, you know, I, I have, I have my husband here, my little sister, she, she came, you know, also uh, on Friday. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just very happy to share with, with the people, you know, I have here because uh, in Paris, it was a bit sad, you know, I, I couldn't go there, you know, to hug them. And now uh, this happened. So I think, you know, just to share it with them, it's, it's amazing. Hi, Marketa. I just wonder how kind of impossible did this feel last year when you had the cast <laughs> on your wrist? And, and what was the process of, of getting back to believe that you could challenge for these times? Uh, yeah, I, I had a cast last year, you know, at, at that time. So uh, it was it was impossible, you know. I was watching my best friend here playing playing qualies, and just I was a tourist here. So uh, yeah, when I was coming back, I I didn't know, you know, what's what's gonna happen and if I can play at that level again. And uh, yeah, I mean, this this seems impossible, you know. Even like I don't know on grass, I I didn't play well, you know, before. So. Uh, I, I mean, I think it was the most impossible Grand Slam for me, you know, to win. So I, I didn't even think of it. And when we came, I was like, just, you know, just try to win a couple of, you know, matches. And uh, now this happened. It's 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 crazy. <laughs> Hello. And um, your husband in the box was very calm, not showing much emotion. Is that superstition? <laughs> he, he had his hand over his face a lot. Yeah, he's like this all the time. <laughs> but but I think when I when I came to the box, he he cried, and uh, I saw him after also, and he cried a lot. So I think that's the first emotion I, I saw him over the eight years. <laughs> I think he he cried uh, on the wedding day also, but that was it for the for the eight years. So <laughs> that's it. Congratulations. You said that uh, you cannot, you ca have never believed that you can uh, win a Wimbledon, but uh, your playstyle obviously suits grass because of the lefty and the slice. And the, uh, so during this past two weeks, is there any specific match or moment where you feel like you felt that you can uh, play good on the grass? Uh, I mean, when I saw the draw, it wasn't it wasn't so easy, you know. I had I had Veronica, then I had Donna, and they they played amazing congrats, you know, the tournaments before. So I was like, okay, so let's try, you know. Then I beat, you know, I beat them in in two sets. So I was like, okay, maybe you know something can happen here. And uh, yeah, I think I was just you know like open minded. I I didn't have much stress till till today. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think like. You just have to believe in yourself, you know, and I was just trying not to think much about the title and everything. And uh, yeah, I think you just have to stay like, you know, focused and in your head and just have the small circle around you and just do the same things as you always do. And uh, 
yeah, I feel like anything can happen, you know, and, and this is this is amazing. Oh my God, so Dan from Sky, uh, you alluded to it earlier, but how much sweeter does this feel after the French Open final, after the Olympics and the injuries you've had? It must make the journey and the tough moments worth it. Yeah, so I was thinking uh, we played finals in Berlin uh, in doubles and my mom was there watching and she was like, she was so sad. She told me like, I, I don't want to be second all the time, you know. I was like, okay, mom, <laughs> so we'll try today, you know. And she was like, I I'm not coming, you know, I just want to, I just want to watch TV and uh yeah, I mean, uh, I was, I was, a, I was a bit nervous before, and when we came came onto the court, I was like, okay, so let's see, you know, what's what's gonna happen. And then I didn't start well, you know, but I, I was just, I feel like I was, you know, so calm, and I, I felt really good. So I was, you know, just trying to put every ball into the into the play, you know, and uh, yeah, I, I'm just so happy, you know, that I I could stay focused. You know, it's it's very tough, and you know people are cheering and everything. So uh, when it was forty laugh, I I couldn't breathe. You know, I was like, <laughs> you know, I just I just was thinking to myself, please just be over. You know, I was I was like crazy nervous. So uh, it was such a relief when I put the match point in. <laughs> Hi Marketa, congratulations. Obviously your win is quite the story, but your cat's also become a story. <laughs> have to ask if you've checked in on him yet and is he going to be getting any treats, maybe a friend now that you've won? <laughs> of course, I think I'm going to buy her some some good fish, you know. <laughs> she's she's with the cat sitter now and my mum my, my is coming tomorrow to watch her. So uh, yeah, she has to wait for us, but I think... I think you know she she doesn't really care what's what's happening, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy her something good. <laughs> what have been the biggest surprises to you about what's happened along the way and then today? Uh, I think I just you know kept my ner nerves together and uh, just you know stayed calm. Like in my head, I was really like calm the the whole match. I think the semis was like. More, more nervous than than this final and uh yeah just i think everybody was surprised how, how calm i i was you know my my coach told me after the final he was like i couldn't believe you know how how calm you are and uh yeah i think that's that was the main main key to to this title that i just you know kept believing and i just kept like calm even when she broke me you know to laugh too and uh, i was just you know i was just talking to myself and just you know told myself just stay focused and just you know keep it together just one follow-up. How were you able to do that? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't really know. I just, you know, I just, I feel like I just uh, believed in my game, you know, since, since like the tournament started and I just felt really good. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I talked to myself a lot in the, in the matches, you know, and uh, I knew I, I was playing good. So I, I just tried to stay calm, you know, and just keep it together. Congratulations, well done. Um, what did you say in the moment? And also, a tough question, if you had to summarize this whole Wimbledon experience into one word or one phrase. Uh, I would say crazy, for sure. Because, uh, as I said, you know, I, I didn't play well before on grass and... Uh, when we were coming here, I was like, okay, just, you know, play without stress and, uh, you know, just try to win a couple of matches. And then, you know, this happened. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. I, I think nobody would have told you this, you know, before when we were coming here that that I even have a chance to win. You know, I was unseated and I mean, it's it's, it's such a, you know, crazy journey. So I just, I, I can't believe it still. Yeah. 
did you feel differently coming into this final than you did into the Paris final? And, and how, and can you talk about those different emotions and whether having had, having played a Grand Slam final before gave you some knowledge ahead of this one? Yeah, so uh, I was 19, the, the first final, so I, I just remember, you know, it was like, it was such a stress, you know, I, I just wanted to do well and it was like a big thing in Czech and everybody was talking about it, you know, and uh, I, sh I think she just crushed me, you know, it was like, it was a very fast match and I didn't even like enjoyed it, you know, I was I was very sad after, so I just I just told myself if, if if this happens, you know, again, you have to enjoy every moment, you know, even even though if I... If I lose, I just have to enjoy. And I think even if I would have lost today, I think I would just, you know, enjoy this moment. And it's such a big achievement. And uh, I just really enjoy this match today. What tattoo do you think you'll get in terms of design? <laughs> I don't know yet. <laughs> but I'll, I'll show you guys on Instagram after. Clay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do you think the person that decided to cancel your indumentary uh, contract is thinking right now? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll see what's going to happen, you know. I'm just going to I'm just going to talk with my with my agents and we'll see what's going to happen. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So that concludes the coverage of the men's singles final and the women's singles final but there is still a lot to get into before we finish up with the tournament i do want to take this moment to go on a little excursion i want to talk about an article and i want to play an article for you so before the tournament started there was an article in the washington post about Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova that got a lot of play, and rightly so. And it's bannered by the incredible picture that you might have seen of Chris and Martina with their eyes closed, leaning their heads against each other. Um, you know, uh, it's an incredible picture. If you haven't seen it... Um, and you want to read this story instead of listening to it, go find this story. Bitter Rivals, Beloved Friends, Survivors by Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post. Um, the Washington Post does have a paywall, but thankfully I don't read the Washington Post, and they give you a certain number of free articles every month. So I was able to uh, gain access to this article. I haven't actually read it yet, because I discovered there's an audio option, and I'm going to listen to this story after I publish this podcast. Um, and I look forward to doing that. But this, you know, I've listened to a little bit of it, and Sally Jenkins is a great sports writer. This is an incredible article. This is a great article. I'm going to play it now. Um, this is the audio that's attached to the official Washington Post story. I do not own this audio. I am not making any money off this audio. Please go give the Washington Post your money instead. But I am going to play the article in its entirety here because I, I do think it's worth it to you know give this away. Um, it is quite lengthy. It, it is a 53-minute story. 
but it's totally worth it to listen to. If you don't want to listen to this, um, skip ahead 53 minutes. Um, check a, check the timestamp in the description. Um, but um, I think this article is definitely worthy of your time and attention, so please take the time to listen to this. Um, so here comes this article by Sally Jenkins. Afterwards, we'll be back to wrap up this pod. All right, here's the article. From the Washington Post, Bitter Rivals, Beloved Friends, Survivors. This story was written by Sally Jenkins and published on the 2nd of July, 2023. It's read by Adrian Walker and produced by Noah. News over audio an app offering curated audio articles from the world's best publishers. There is an audible rhythm to a Grand Slam tennis tournament, a thwock, tock, tock, thwock of strokes, like beats per minute, that steadily grows fainter as the field diminishes. At first, the locker room is a hive of 128 competitors, milling and chattering, but each day their numbers ebb until just two people are left in that confrontational hush known as the final. For so many years, Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova were almost invariably the last two, left alone in a room so empty, yet intimate, that they could practically hear what was inside the other's chest. Thwok, talk. They dressed side by side. They waited together. Sometimes ate together and entered the arena together. Then they would play a match that seemed like a personal cross-examination, running each other headlong into emotional confessions, concessions. And afterward, they would return to that small room of two, where they showered and changed, observing with sidelong glances the other's triumphalism or tears, states beyond mere bare skin. No one else could possibly understand it, except for the other. She knew me better than I knew me. Navratilova says. They have known each other for 50 years now, outlasting most marriages. Aside from blood kin, Navratilova points out, I've known Chris longer than anybody else in my life, and so it is for her. Lately, they have never been closer, a fact they refuse to cheapen with sentimentality. It's been up and down, the friendship, Everett says. At the ages of 68 and 66, respectively, Everett and Navratilova have found themselves more intertwined than ever, by an unwelcome factor. You want to meet an opponent who draws you nearer in mutual understanding? Try having cancer at the same time. It was like, are you kidding me? Everett says. The shape of the relationship is an hourglass. They first met as teenagers in 1973, became friends, and then split apart as each rose to number one in the world, at the direct expense of the other. They contested 80 matches, 60 of them finals, riveting for their contrasts in tactics and temperament. After a 15-year rivalry, they somehow reached a perfect equipoise of 18 Grand Slam victories each. On some slow or rainy day when the tennis at Wimbledon is banging and artless as a metronome or suspended by weather, do yourself a favor. Call up highlights of Everett and Navratilova's match at the 1981 U.S. Open. They are 26 and 24 years old, respectively, honed to fine edges. It's as if they were purposely constructed to test each other and to whip up intense reactions from their audiences, 
the adorable blonde American middle-class heroine with the frictionless grace against the flurrying Eastern European with sculpted muscles who played like a sword fighter. Everett played from a restrained conventional demeanor with ribbons in her hair, earrings in her ears. Yet she was utterly new. Audiences had never seen anything quite like the compressed lethality of this two-fisted young woman who knocked off the legendary Margaret Court at the age of just 15 in 1970. She was a squint-eyed, firm-chinned executioner who delivered strokes like milled steel. She had mystique, and she refused to be hemmed in. As she held the number one ranking for five straight years, she reserved the right to court romantic danger with a bewildering array of famous men, not all of them suitable for a nice Catholic girl, from the surly Jimmy Connors to superstar actor Burt Reynolds, and to put them second to her career. Her composure cloaked one of the toughest minds in the annals of sport, and her 900 winning percentage remains virtually unrivaled in tennis history. Navratilova was her inverse, a gustily emotional left-handed servant volleyer who challenged every traditional definition of heroine with an edgy militancy. Her game had an acrobatic suppleness that was also entirely novel. Never had a female athlete moved with such airborne ease, or acted so honestly. Navratilova was as overtly political as Everett was popular. Her defection from communist Czechoslovakia in 1975 was an act of unimaginable bravery, and her struggle to win acceptance from Western crowds was compounded by her defiant inability to censor herself or mask her homosexuality. Advised to put a man in her box at Wimbledon, she refused. Once, when asked whether she was openly gay, she shot back, as opposed to closedly? More prideful generations can't comprehend how in the vanguard Navratilova was when she came out in 1981, or the price she paid in lost endorsements. The New York Times that year announced that homosexuality was the most sensitive issue in the sports marketplace, more delicate than drugs, more controversial than violence. Male sports writers fixated on the veins in her arms. Newsweek veered out of its way to accuse her of accentuating some lifestyle manifesto. She repaid them all by becoming the first female athlete to win a million dollars in prize money in a single year. Small wonder Everett and Navratilova's matches seemed like such colossal encounters. As they competed, the TV cameras zeroed in on their faces and found Mother of Dragons expressions, a willingness to play to ashes. That, too, was new. It once had been considered unnatural for a woman to contend with such unembarrassed intensity. As Everett's own agent said in 1981, female sports stars were expected to be ladylike and not too greedy in their negotiations, while their male counterparts could win every nickel and feel quite comfortable about it. Not anymore. Everett and Navratilova had established their common right to go to the ends of the earth, the absolute ends of the earth, to achieve something, Everett says. By the time Everett and Navratilova retired from singles play in 1989 and 1994, respectively, they had reached a mutual understanding. Not only were they level with an equal number of major titles, but the rivalry was so transcendent it had become a kind of joint accomplishment. After their retirements, they followed strangely similar courses. They were neighbors in Aspen, Colorado, and Florida, 
at times living just minutes from each other. Everett's longtime base is Boca Raton, while Navratilova has a home in Miami Beach, as well as a small farm just up the road in Everett's birthplace of Fort Lauderdale, where she keeps a multitude of chickens. She brings me eggs, Everett says. Each eventually went into tennis broadcasting, which meant they continued to meet at Grand Slam fortnights. Our lives are so parallel, it's eerie when you think about it, Navratilova says. They became the kind of friends who talked and texted weekly, sometimes exchanging black box confidences deep in the night, and who could tease each other with a mischief they wouldn't tolerate from anyone else. On Navratilova's 60th birthday, she received a Cartier box from Evert. Inside was a necklace with three rings of white gold, signifying the two and their long friendship. I guess I'm kind of the guy in our relationship, giving her jewelry, Evert cracks. The parallels were funny until they weren't. In January 2022, Everett learned that she had stage 1C ovarian cancer. As Everett embarked on a grueling six cycles of chemotherapy, Navratilova pulled the Cartier necklace from her jewelry box and put it on, a talisman. I wore it all the time when I wanted her to get well, Navratilova says. For months, she never took it off. Only one thing made her remove it, radiation. In December 2022, Navratilova received her own diagnosis. She had not one, but two early-stage cancers in her throat and breast. I finally had to take it off when I got zapped, Navratilova says. On a late spring day, Everett and Navratilova sat together in an elegant Miami hotel, both finally cancer-free at the end of long dual sieges. Everett was just a few weeks removed from her fourth surgery in 16 months, a reconstruction following a mastectomy she underwent in late January. Navratilova had just finished the last session of a scorching protocol of radiation and chemo, during which she lost 29 pounds. She toyed with a plate of gluten-free pasta, happy to be able to swallow without pain. They were finally ready to look over their shoulders and tell some stories. New stories, but also some old ones that felt fresh again or came with a new frankness. Everett recalled the day she phoned Navratilova to tell her she had cancer. She was one of the very first people I told, she says. Wait a second. Is Everett saying that the rival who dealt her the deepest professional cuts of her life, whose mere body language on the court once made her seethe, was among the very first people she wanted to talk to when she got cancer? It's one thing to share a rich history and be neighbors and swap gifts and teasing, but are they those kinds of confidants? And is the same true for Navratilova, that Everett, whose mere existence meant that no matter how much she won, she could never really win, who at one point dominated her with an infuriating superciliousness, was among the first people she called when she got cancer? Is that what they are saying? Indeed, it is. When I called her, it was a feeling of, like, coming home, Everett says. Hang on, you say. Go back. They met February 25, 1973, in the player lounge of a Florida tour stop. Everett, 18, was playing backgammon with a tournament official at a table by a wall. Though she had been a top player for two years by then, she was by nature shy and felt isolated by her fame and the circumscribing stereotype that came with it. Sports Illustrated would paint her as a 
composite of Sandra D, the Carpenters, and, yes, apple pie, which she dealt with by cultivating a clamped, sardonic purse of the mouth. Ever glanced up and saw a new girl approaching, pale and plump as a dumpling, with a guileless face beneath a mop of hair. Hi, Chris, she recalls Navratilova blurting. From the 16-year-old Navratilova's point of view, it was Everett who spoke first, giving her a sweet murmured, hi, and a small wave. Oh, my God, Chris Everett said hello to me, Navratilova thought. Navratilova recognized Everett from the picture she poured over in World Tennis Magazine, one of the few subscriptions she could get in her home village of Revnice, outside of Prague. Let's stipulate that the greetings were simultaneous, the reflexive reactions of two girls who were the antithetical of mean, more sensitive than their other competitors ever realized. Both always underestimated in our empathy, as Navratilova says, and who had the mutual desire to break the taboo of competition, as Everett once called it, that inhibited so many girls. Later in the tournament, Everett spotted Navratilova again. Picture this, Everett says. Navratilova was walking straight through the grounds in a one-piece bathing suit and flip-flops, oblivious to stares at her crisscrossing tan lines. It was Navratilova's first trip to the United States. She was granted an eight-week leave by the communist Czechoslovakian government to try her game against the Western elites, and she was determined to luxuriate in it. She's got guts, Everett thought. Their first match a month later in Akron, Ohio, on March 22, 1973, is crystal to them both a half-century later. Though Everett won in straight sets, Navratilova pushed her to 7-6 in the first. 5-4 in the tiebreaker, Navratilova says instantly, as soon as it's mentioned, bristling, and I actually had a set point. Everett had never faced anything like it. The curving lefty serve caromed away from her, and so did the charging volleys. She had weapons that I hadn't seen in a young player ever, Everett said. Two things gave Everett relief. Navratilova's lack of fitness, she had put on 20 pounds in four weeks on American pancakes, and her emotionalism. She was almost crying on the court in the match, you know, just moaning, Everett says. Nevertheless, Everett had never felt such a formidableness from a new opponent and never would again. Overwhelming is the word Everett searches for and finds. More than any player coming up in the last 40 years. To Navratilova, it was equally memorable for the simple reason that she had nearly taken a set off Everett. For me, that was unforgettable. But yeah, I made an impression. I was pretty confident that I would beat her one day. I just didn't know how long it would take. Friendship was easy enough at first, so long as Everett was winning. She won 16 of their first 20 matches. In their first Grand Slam final at the 1975 French Open, she smoked Navratilova 6-2-6-1 in the second and third sets after casually sharing a lunch of roasted chicken with her. Everett was so utterly regnant and aloof in those days, she seemed to Navratilova like a castle with a moat. She had a forbidding self-containment, a stony demeanor that one competitor from the 1970s, Leslie Hunt, likened in Sports Illustrated to playing a blank wall. Navratilova could not fathom how Everett cast such a huge projection with such an unprepossessing figure. I was like, holy shit, how does she do it? Navratilova remembers. Everett stood just five foot six and weighed a slim-shouldered 125 pounds. 
but she had a superb economy of motion. And something else. One day, Navratilova watched fascinated as Everett practiced against her younger sister, Jeannie Everett, who also played on the tour. Both Everts had two-handed backhands, and they wore skirts with no pockets, which meant that to hit a backhand, someone had to drop the ball she carried in her left hand, and it would bounce distractingly around her feet. As Navratilova watched, she realized, with growing amusement, that Chris was engaged in a subtle contest of will. It was kind of a mental fight, Navratilova recalls. Who was going to hit the first ball? Because whoever didn't hit first would have to drop their ball. Chris never missed the chance to hit first. It was a small thing, but it took a steely determination, Navratilova says, and she never missed. It registered. By the end of the session, Navratilova understood that Everett's greatest weapon was her brain. Navratilova herself was so mentally distractible that she would follow the flight of a bird across the stadium sky. Her thoughts and feelings seemed to blow straight through her, unfiltered. Everett could not help but be disarmed by this open-hearted, unconstrained young woman who seemed hungry to experience everything. Pancakes, pool time, freedom, friendship, fast cars. Everett's urge to befriend Navratilova won out over her reserve. Everett invited her to be her doubles partner and even took her on a double date with Dean Martin Jr., son of the entertainer, and Desi Arnaz Jr., Martin's actor friend and pop band collaborator. The teen idols squired Everett and Navratilova to a drive-in movie. Everett and Navratilova traveled together, practiced together, even brunched before they met in finals. I was a tough nut to crack, Everett observes, but she was so innocent and almost vulnerable when she was young. I trusted being safe with her. Over dinners and glasses of wine, Navratilova discovered the mutinous side of Everett, which expressed itself with an unsuspected saltiness. Everett delighted in telling Navratilova scandalously dirty jokes. The outward banality of the girl hurling herself off the pedestal compounded Navratilova's outbursts of laughter. The curtain would fall, Navratilova says, and the funny Chris came out. The filter was gone. The walls were gone. And that's when I realized she just kept the cards close to her chest. But she was so mischievous underneath it all. By 1976, however, Navratilova began to score more victories over Everett. In that year's Wimbledon semifinals, it was all Everett could do to hold her off. 6-3, 4-6, I was nipping at her heels, Navratilova says. I was becoming a threat. That is when all the trouble started, and they entered the narrowest part of the hourglass. Everett believed she had gotten too close to Navratilova. She broke up their doubles partnership. She ditched me, Navratilova says. Everett did it politely, telling Navratilova she would have to find another partner because she wanted to focus on her singles. But it stung, and Navratilova knew the real reason. Chris, by her own admission, could only be close friends with people who never had a chance of beating her, Navratilova says. Everett hated to play someone she cared about. Hated it. I thought, God, I can't be emotional towards these people, Everett says now. It was easier not to even know them. Everett's on-court demeanor was a facade, developed to please her father and coach, Jimmy Everett, a renowned teaching pro at the public Holiday Park in Fort Lauderdale. Jimmy was a man of such rigor and unbending rectitude 
that he refused to raise his $6 hourly fee for lessons because of his daughter's success. But he was not right about everything. He demanded that Chris commit to tennis at the exclusion of all else. Friends were incompatible with rivals, he told her. I was raised in a house that did not encourage relationships, she says. And he brooked no dissent. It was a fearful sort of upbringing, she adds. The result was a young woman who, beneath her stoicism, roiled with insecurity and anxiety. Navratilova observes that, in its way, Everett's childhood was as stifling as her own had been in Czechoslovakia. We are much more the same than different, really, she says. So much of it was imposed on both of us, one way or the other, with her Catholic proper girl upbringing and me being suppressed by communism. Ever convinced herself that she and Navratilova had become too familiar with each other and that it cost her an edge. So, I separated myself from her, Everett says. It was bad timing for Navratilova, who was feeling doubly cut off. A year earlier, she had defected. Czech authorities had increasingly expressed the ominous sentiment that Navratilova was getting too Americanized, partly thanks to her budding friendship with Everett, and she feared they were about to choke off her career. Navratilova struggled with homesickness, concern for her family, whom she would not see for almost five years, mastering a new language. She studied English by watching I Love Lucy reruns, and the stress of hiding her homosexuality. As she related in her autobiography, by the time Everett ditched her at the U.S. Open, I was a walking candidate for a nervous breakdown. She lost in the opening round to a grossly inferior player, Janet Newberry, and dissolved into sobs on national television. But Navratilova emerged from the catharsis a firmer character. She watched with a mounting, gnawing dissatisfaction as Everett dominated the Grand Slams, challenged only by Ivan Gulagong. At one point, Navratilova heard Everett talk in an interview about how her rivalry with Gulagong was defining her. Navratilova bridled at the statement. I remember thinking, what about me? Navratilova recalls. When it finally came, Navratilova's breakthrough and the role reversal was breath-snatching. By 1981, she had developed some armor. Training with Nancy Lieberman, the former basketball great, she dropped her body fat to 8%. Lieberman told her she had to get mean about Everett and showed what she meant by being intentionally rude to Everett in player lounges. Everett would start to greet them, and Lieberman would turn her back or say frostily, Are you talking to me? It quietly infuriated Everett. They weren't very nice to me, Everett says. I mean, Nancy taught her to hate me. From 1982 to 1984, it was Navratilova's turn to be cold. She reached 10 Grand Slam finals and won eight of them. In that stretch, she beat Everett 14 straight times with an abbreviating serve-and-volley power that seemed almost dismissive. She was in the way of me getting to number one, Navratilova says, so I kind of created that distance. She was my carrot when I was training. You know, I would imagine beating Chris. She became the villain, even though she really wasn't. Everett struggled not to lose heart, especially when Navratilova beat her by 6-1-6-3 in the 1983 U.S. Open. It was not a good feeling to know that I wasn't even in the game, Everett says. About to turn 30, she had fallen behind in a variety of ways, from her fitness to the fact that Navratilova was using a graphite racket 
while she still used wood. She was also trying to sort her personal life and separated from her husband of five years, British player John Lloyd. Navratilova paraded her triumph by whipping around in a white Rolls-Royce convertible, one of six cars in her garage. She won so much that by 1984 it made her generous again. She now trained with a more amiable tennis tactician named Mike Estep, and her partner Judy Nelson, a former Texas beauty contestant, liked Everett and worked to repair the relationship. At Wimbledon that July, after beating Everett 7 6, 7 5, 6 2, to even their all time match record at 30 30, Navratilova was sensitive to Everett's quiet devastation. Navratilova said sweetly into the victor's microphone, I wish we could just quit right now and never play each other again, because it's not right for one of us to say we're better. So, does that mean she's retiring now? Everett said in a news conference afterward, wise crackery intact. Navratilova's dominance of Everett that summer made her more of an anti-heroine than she had ever been, and resulted in one of the most wounding days of her career. On the afternoon of the 1984 U.S. Open final, they had an interminably tense wait as Pat Cash and Yvonne Lendl engaged in a five-set men's semifinal that went to two tiebreakers and lasted nearly four hours. There was nothing to do but stare into space or chat. Everett became starving. Navratilova, who had a bagel, split it and handed her half. When they finally took the court, they needed a while to find their form and then they suddenly went into full classic mode. When Everett began to lace the court with passing shots as if she was running out clotheslines, taking the opening set 6-4, the crowd leaped to its feet and roared like jet engines. But when Navratilova took the second set, 6-4, there came a smattering of boos. As Navratilova turned the match in her favor, some grew surly. They began to applaud her errors and cheered when she double-faulted. When she won it with the knifing volley, 4-6-6-4-6-4, there was a barely polite ovation. Navratilova was unstrung by the rejection. As Estep gave her a congratulatory hug, she burst into tears in his arms. Why were they so against me? she asked Estep. The answer, because she had won too much against Everett. It was Navratilova's sixth straight Grand Slam victory and the most ambivalent feeling she ever had. She buried her head in a towel, shoulders quivering. One person knew how Navratilova felt that day, Everett. For years, she had lived with the Ice Maiden label and frigidness from crowds that considered her too impassive. Gulagong, the wispy, ethereal Australian, had always been more favored by fans, to the point that on one occasion, Everett came back into the locker room after a loss and flung her rackets to the floor and spat bitterly, Now I hope they're happy. Everett and Navratilova wanted to be appreciated for who they were, but it felt impossible with all the media caricatures of them as princesses, robots. Chris America versus the foreigner. The delicate sweetheart versus the bulging lesbian. All that stuff hurt, Navratilova says. Everett refused to play into any of the tropes that day, or any other day, for which Navratilova felt deeply grateful. Chris never did anything to make it worse, you know, Navratilova says. At some point in the wake of that difficult year, they struck a private agreement. They would not respond to the stereotypes or any egging on from the media or their own audiences. 
if either had a question about something, she would speak directly to the other, so that we knew where we stand, Navratilova says. Early in 1985, Everett beat Navratilova for the first time in over two years at the Virginia Slims of Florida. Nobody beats Chris Everett 15 times in a row, she deadpanned. The renewal set up another masterpiece, the 1985 French Open final. The match is a fascinating revisit and reveal. After they took the court, what's striking is how they had borrowed from each other, forced the other to adapt. It's Navratilova who wins some of the longest baseline rallies, and Everett who presses the net first on some points. Navratilova has fully appropriated imperiousness, blonde and bejeweled, diamonds in her ears, gold bracelets and rings. Everett is the one who is stripped down. Her hair is shorn short, and there is nothing on her wrist but a sweatband. It's clear she had gone back to work, developed ropes of muscles in her arms, and stealthily broadened her game over those two seasons of losses. Right hand against left, they went at each other like flashing sabers. As their rallies wore on, they played with apparent curiosity. There had been so many matches. How do you surprise one another? Navratilova says. How do you find something new or different when you know everything already? Sometimes, as the ball flew, one of them would just nod before it landed and acknowledge that it was too good with a, yep. Everett would never be better. She found ways to wrong-foot the charging, slashing Navratilova. She always had been irritated by the shoulder swagger Navratilova could show after a great point, but she was fully capable of her own show of supremacy, and she showed it here with the head-tossing of an empress and a mincy little walk that could only be called a sachet. A point-blank volley exchange at the net, won by Everett, had broadcaster Bug Collins screaming, Oh, eyeball to eyeball! On one exchange, the force of Everett's shot knocked the racket from Navratilova's hand and sent her sprawling to the red clay. On match point, she lured Navratilova to the net with a short forehand, then pivoted to deliver an unfurling backhand winner up the line, past a diving Navratilova, through an opening as narrow as one of her old hair ribbons. And it was over. Everett had won 6-3, 6-7, 7-4, 7-5. They embrace at the net as one of their enduringly favorite pictures. They threw their arms over each other's shoulders, mutually exhausted, yet beaming over the quality of the tennis they had just played. You can't tell who won, Navratilova says. It seemed as if they were no longer playing against each other so much as with each other, and that's how it stayed. From then on, their locker room atmosphere became more than just companionable. It was consoling. Someone would win and someone would lose, and the loser would sit on a bench, head dangling, and the other, unable to look away, would drift over and sit down. Sometimes, hours afterward, one of them would open her tennis bag and find a sweet note in it. We were the last two left standing, Everett says. I saw her at her highest and at her lowest, and I think because we saw each other that way, the vulnerable part, that's another level of friendship. In 1986, Navratilova was scheduled to return to Czechoslovakia for the first time since her defection to play a match for the U.S. Federation Cup team. Will you come? she asked Everett. I don't know how they'll treat me. Everett was nursing a knee injury, but she went. Navratilova was overjoyed to be teammates for a change. We could be happy at the same time for once, she says. 
Everett was rewarded with an extraordinary experience. She watched her friend get a standing ovation from crowds standing three deep while Czech officials stared at their shoes. At Everett's final Wimbledon in 1989, one more remarkable scene played out between them. Everett by then was flagging, her intensity worn thin. In the quarterfinals, she was in danger of an undignified loss to unseated 87th-ranked Laura Galarsa. She trailed 5-2 in the third set, just two points from defeat. This isn't how I want to go out, she thought grimly. Navratilova, watching on TV in the player lounge, stood up and dashed out to courtside. She took a seat in the grandstand. Come on, Chrissy, Navratilova's voice rang out. Everett had just a moment to feel moved, touched. Just then, Galarsa delivered a volley. On a dead run, Everett chased it, stretched out, pulled nearly into the stands, her backhand fully extended. Everett drove a screaming pass down the alley that curled around the net post and checked the opposite corner, a clean winner. Navratilova shrieked with the thrill of it like a little girl. Everett swept the rest of the set and won at 7-5, arguably the most astonishing comeback of her life. She's got my back, Everett says now. I've got hers. Friendship is arguably the most wholly voluntary relationship. It reflects a mutual decision to keep pasting something back together, no matter how far it gets pulled apart, even when there is no obligatory reason, no justice of the peace vow or chromosomal tie. Everett and Navratilova just kept finding reasons to hang on to the relationship, to the point that they became hilariously entangled in each other's personal affairs. It's a fact that Navratilova set up Everett with the man who remains the most important one in her life, Andy Mill. Toward the close of Everett's playing career, Navratilova knew Everett was lonely and depressed after her divorce from Lloyd, which caused Jimmy Everett to briefly stop speaking to his daughter. Navratilova invited Everett to spend Christmas with her in Aspen. She took her skiing and to a New Year's party at the Hotel Jerome, where she knew there would be good-looking men in droves. That night, Everett met the impossibly handsome Mill, who the next day gallantly coached Everett down a steep slope, skiing backward and holding her hands. At the end of the week, as Navratilova packed to leave for the Australian Open, Everett appeared in her doorway. Do you mind if I stay on for a few days? Everett asked. Navratilova arched an eyebrow and smiled. Sure. With the house to herself, Everett had her first tryst with Mill, causing the gentleman to exclaim the next morning, My God, I'm with Chris Everett in Martina Navratilova's bed! Everett's 1988 wedding to Mill marked the rare occasion when Navratilova wore a skirt. Years later, Navratilova was still teasing Everett. I should have put that bet on eBay. In 2014, when Navratilova wed longtime partner Julia Lemagova, she did not have to debate whom to choose as maid of honor. Everett was by her side. But of course, Navratilova says. Navratilova had never properly told Everett how much her unwavering support against homophobia had meant. Especially in crucial moments, such as 1990, when Australian champion Margaret Court called Navratilova a bad role model for being gay. Martina is a role model to me, Everett snapped back publicly. As Navratilova put it, Everett was gay-friendly before it was okay to be. It made Navratilova's public life incalculably more bearable. 
It was more than nice, Navratilova says now of Everett's stance. It was huge. On matters of character, Navratilova says, Everett underrates herself. Here's where they stood when the cancers came. Everett had just finished rearing three adored sons to adulthood and was resolutely single again after a psychological reckoning. Her long emotional containment finally imploded in 2006. She left Mill for former pro golfer Greg Norman. A terrible mistake. The union lasted just 15 months. Determined to know herself better, she went into counseling to figure out what makes me tick and how I'm wired why I'm wired the way I am, and why I have made mistakes the way I have, and emerged with a piercing self-honesty. She reestablished a closeness with Mill and reinvested herself in her second calling as a mentor to young prodigies at the developmental tennis camp she founded, the Everett Tennis Academy. At over 60, she could still go for two hours on a court with women a third her age. Just down the freeway from her, Navratilova had found her anchor with Lamagova, with whom she stepmothered two daughters and cared for an assortment of animals—donkeys, goats, dogs, and exotic birds—including a talkative parrot named Pushkin. One of the most broadly-read great athletes who ever lived, she absorbed tomes such as Timothy Snyder's account of encroaching fascism, The Road to Unfreedom, with a lightning intelligence that could light up a hillside. In February 2020, a funeral notice appeared in the Fort Lauderdale papers. Mass for Jeannie Everett Dubin would be set at 10 a.m. at St. Anthony's Church. Everett had watched with mounting grief as her precious younger sister fought ovarian cancer until her arms were bruised by needles and ports and she wasted to less than 80 pounds. Sitting in a pew was Navratilova, who would spend the next 12 hours by Everett's side. She attended the graveside services, then sat with Everett and her family at home until 10 that night. Nearly two years after Jeannie's death in November 2021, Everett got a call out of the blue from the Cleveland Clinic. Genetic testing that Jeannie had undergone during her illness had been reappraised with new study, and she had a BRCA1 variant that was pathogenic. The doctor recommended that Everett get tested immediately. The very next day, Everett got a test, and she, too, was positive for the BRCA1 mutation. Her doctor, Joe Cardenas, recommended an immediate hysterectomy. Everett called Navratilova and told her about the test and that she was scheduled for surgery and further testing. It's preventative, Everett told her reassuringly. On the other end of the phone, she heard Navratilova exhale, oh, a long sigh of inarticulate dismay. In 2010, Navratilova had been diagnosed with a non-invasive breast cancer after making the mistake of going four years without a mammogram. Her cancer was contained, but still. Navratilova wouldn't feel comfortable for Everett until all the tests had come back. The first thing, the very first thing I thought of was, if I'm going to go through these trenches with anybody, Martina would be the person I'd want to go through them with, Everett says, because she's strong. She doesn't take any nonsense from people. She just gets the job done, and I think that's the mentality I had. When Everett's pathology report came back after the surgery, however, she felt anything but strong. Surgery revealed high-grade malignancy in her fallopian tubes. Everett would have to undergo a second surgery to harvest lymph nodes and test fluid in her stomach cavity to determine what stage she was. 
Jeannie's cancer had not been discovered until she was stage three. I knew that anything stage three or four, you don't have a good chance, Everett says. For three days, Everett waited for the results with the understanding that they were life or death. Humble moment, Everett says. You know, just because I was number one in the world, it doesn't, I'm just like everyone else. Everett got unfathomably lucky. The cancer hadn't progressed. Had she waited even three more months to be tested, it probably would have spread. As soon as she was able, Everett would go public with her diagnosis to encourage testing. An estimated 25 million people carry a BRCA mutation, and like her, 90% of them have no idea. I had felt fine. I was working out, and I had cancer in my body, she says. Everett still had a hard road ahead, with six cycles of chemo, but her chances of recovery were 90%. Her eldest son, Alex, moved in to support her daily care and even designed a workout regimen so she could sweat out the poisons. Mill took her to every chemo treatment and held her hand. Her good friend, Christiane Amanpour, also diagnosed with ovarian cancer, sent her healing ointments from Paris. Her youngest sister, Claire, flew in monthly to nurse her through the sickish after-effects, even climbing into bed with her. But nothing can really make cancer a collective experience. It's an experiential impasse. Everyone responds differently to the treatment and the accompanying dread. Late at night, Everett would be sleepless from the queasiness and a strange sense of small electric shocks biting into her bones. She would have to slip out of bed and walk around the house, by herself with it. Cancer makes you feel alone, Everett says, because it's like nobody can take that pain from you. Compounding Everett's sense of aloneness was the abruptness with what she had toppled from a sense of supreme athletic command to feebleness. There was one person who could understand that. What can I do for you? Navratilova asked. They were in a room of just two all over again. I can tell her my fears, Everett says. I can be 100% honest with her. Navratilova came by the house and called regularly but she also knew how to lay back. Sometimes she would call and Everett would answer right away, and sometimes it would take three or four days before she answered. It felt, in a way, like the old locker room days when she knew Everett was laboring with a loss. I think because we were there for each other before, we kind of knew what to do or what not to do instinctively, even though this was a first, Navratilova says. In the middle of Everett's treatments, a gift arrived from Navratilova. It was a large piece of art. The canvas was lacquered with Everett's favorite playing surface, red clay, and painted with white tennis lines, on which a series of ball marks were embedded, including one that had ticked the white line. The piece was by Navratilova herself, who in retirement took up art. The canvas was really a portrait of Everett, of the exquisite measured precision of her game, a tribute. Everett immediately hung it in a primary place in her living room. After every cycle of treatment, Everett would rebound with a tenacity that astounded Navratilova. She would plead with her doctors, Can I get on a treadmill? Just days removed from an IV, she would start power walking again or riding her beloved Peloton bike until she was slick with sweat. She even did light CrossFit workouts with weights. She's an animal, Navratilova observes admiringly. By the summer of 2022, 
Everett was healthy enough to go back to work as a broadcaster, although with a wig. And in November, she joined Navratilova in a public appearance at the season-ending WTA finals in Fort Worth. The pair went shopping together for cowboy boots and hats, strolling through the Fort Worth Stockyards historic district. And that's when Everett delivered a piece of news that undid Navratilova. I'm having a double mastectomy, Everett said. She explained that her BRCA mutation meant she was at high risk of developing breast cancer on top of the ovarian. Navratilova was so affected she burst into tears. It was such a shock to me because I thought she was done, she says, and as she retells the story, she weeps again. She had watched Everett go public with her diagnosis and slug her way through chemo, and she hoped she was past it. Now she would face more months of convalescence. I knew what she was going through publicly and privately, Navratilova says, and it just knocked me on my ass. Navratilova was still grappling with Everett's news when she was floored by her own cancer diagnosis. During the Fort Worth trip, Navratilova felt a sore lump in her neck. She wasn't taking any chances and underwent a biopsy when she got home. Everett got a text from Navratilova. Can you call me as soon as possible? I need to talk to you. Everett checked her phone and saw that Navratilova had also tried to call her. Everett thought, oh, shit, that's not good. Navratilova's sore lump proved to be a cancerous lymph node. Like Everett, she had to undergo multiple lumpectomies and further tests, with a frightening three days waiting for the results, worried that it had advanced into her organs. I'm thinking, I could be dead in a year, she says. She distracted herself by thinking about her favorite subject, beautiful cars, and browsing them online. Which car am I going to drive in the last year of my life, she asked herself. A Bentley? A Ferrari? The verdict, when the testing came back, was a combination of relief and gut punch. The throat cancer was a highly curable stage one, but the follow-up screening also revealed she had an early-stage breast cancer, unrelated to her previous bout. She was so stunned, she had a hard time even driving herself home. But by the time Everett reached her by phone, Navratilova was in an incredulous, fear-fueled rage. I sensed that it really pissed her off more than anything, Everett says. She was mad about it. Can you believe it? Navratilova stormed. It's in my throat, and then they found something in my breast. For a minute, the two of them considered the bizarreness of both fighting cancer at the same time. Navratilova had always chased Everett, but she didn't want to chase her in this pursuit. Jesus, I guess we're taking this to a whole new level. Navratilova said. And then they both started giggling. Because it was just so ironic, Everett says. But then Navratilova grew serious again. She admitted to Everett, I'm scared. It was the same sudden whiff of mortality, the same you're not so special after all jolt that Everett had gotten. As a top-level athlete, you think you're going to live to a hundred and that you can rehab it all, Navratilova says. And then you realize, I can't rehab this. So sharing that fear was easy, easier with her than anybody else. Navratilova's cancer was not as dangerous as Everett's, but it was more arduous. It required three cycles of chemo, 15 sessions of targeted proton therapy on her throat, 35 more proton treatments on the lymph nodes in her neck, 
and five sessions of conventional radiation on her breast. Navratilova arranged to do it at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York, hunkering down at a friend's vacant apartment. Unbelievably, Navratilova chose to undergo most of it alone. She wanted to protect her family from worry over her. You just keep it in because you don't want to affect the people around you. She also wanted to cultivate her former big match mentality, to focus on the fight. Even just answering the question when somebody says, Can I get you anything? It takes energy, Navratilova says now. And it's just easier to not have to think what you're going to say or to deny help ten times. The proton treatments were a series of slow singes. Her sense of taste turned to ashes, and swallowing felt like an acid rinse. As her weight plunged, she shivered on the cold medical tables, unable to get warm, to the point that she wore a ski vest to the hospital. She developed deep circles under her eyes from insomnia. As the poisons mounted in her, it was as if she aged fifty years overnight. Everything felt just wrong, she says. This was a woman who had trekked up Mount Kilimanjaro at the age of fifty-four, reaching fourteen thousand feet before she was felled with a case of pulmonary edema. At sixty-five, she could still do thirty push-ups in a row. Now she needed two hands to drink a glass of water. Everett had an almost intuitive sense of when to check up on Navratilova. Just when she would be near despair, not trusting herself to drink from a glass with one quivering hand, the phone would buzz, and it would be Everett. What stands out is the timing, Navratilova says. It was always spot on. Like, she knew I was at a low point. I don't know how she knew, but she did. It was like some kind of cosmic connection, because it was uncanny. Everett would be briskly sympathetic and to the point. Don't tough it out, she would say. Then just listen. There was no need for question or explanation. There was just understanding. It was always there, Navratilova says. So we didn't have to, like, try to find it. Sometimes the only sound on the line would be the two people breathing, wordless with mutual comprehension. Everett says, With all the experiences we had, winning and losing and comforting each other, I think we ended up having more compassion for each other than anybody in the world could have. As Everett and Navratilova finished picking over lunch salads, their senses of renewal in the Miami sunshine made them seem almost radiant. Life feels clearer, uncluttered, Everett says. From a distance, they cut the figures of teenagers. Everett is as neatly trim as ever, an impression enhanced by her newly grown pixie-length platinum hair. Navratilova, too, is slender as a youth. Only up close do you see lingering creases of fatigue around their eyes and sense the scars beneath their clothes and the tentativeness of their confidence. Everett admits she is hesitant to say her cancer is really gone. It could come back. Look, it could come back. It's cancer, right? It's always peripheral. Navratilova agrees. She compares it to waking up on the morning of an important match, a Wimbledon final, with the reverse of anticipation. For the first few seconds of semi-consciousness after opening her eyes, she feels peace, and then the awareness of something important impending seeps in. 
and then it hits her. Cancer. It's always hovering, Navratilova says. You just put it out of sight. You go on with what you're doing. The way they go on is as follows. They go public with their diagnoses and accounts of treatment. Because all those years that they were clashing over trophies, they also had a sense of a larger public responsibility. To the game or women athletes or women, as Navratilova says. A sense that it wasn't enough just to be great. They also had to be good for something. To help, Everett says. They work out as much as the doctors allow, maybe even a little more than they advise, at first provisionally and then with growing defiance, even though each of their bodies is still fighting the crap that's inside it, as Navratilova says, in her case doing just two push-ups and going skiing before her radiation was done. Skiing during radiation, Everett crows in disbelief. They lift weights above their shoulders, though the sore scars in their chests aren't entirely healed, and they hit on the tennis court, though in Navratilova's case, the effort to chase a ball even two steps leaves her winded, and in Everett's, it makes her feel clumsy-footed and angry, until she reminds herself, Chrissy, who do you think you are? And then she calls Navratilova, and they both laugh at themselves in this companionable frailty. There are statues of Arthur Ashe at the U.S. Open, Fred Perry at Wimbledon, Rod Laver at the Australian Open, and Rafael Nadal at the French Open. The Blazers, who run the major championships, have not yet commissioned sculptures of these two women, who so unbound their sport and gave the gift of professional aspiration to so many. Yet who exemplify, perhaps more than any champions in the annals of their sport, the deep internal mutual grace called sportsmanship? But then they don't need bronzing. They have something much warmer than that. Each other. You are listening to The Washington Post, where Sally Jenkins writes, Bitter Rivals, Beloved Friends, Survivors. This article was published on the 2nd of July, 2023, and was read by Adrian Walker for Noah. Wow. Great stuff, wasn't it? All right. Um, so switching gears um, again here. Just a couple other quick topics compared to the beginning of the pod before we get out of here. Next, let's talk about other results from Sunday at the All England Club because there were several other championships that needed to be decided. Um, in the ladies' doubles, Sue Shea and Barbora Strikova beat Storm Hunter and Elisa Mertens, 7-5-6-4. In the gentlemen's wheelchair singles, Tokido Oda beat Alfie Hewitt, 6-4-6-2. That's a tough beat for Hewitt. He really wanted that. In the junior boys' singles, Henry Searle beat Demean, 6-4-6-4. It's the first British junior boys winner at Wimbledon since 1962. In the quad wheelchair singles, Niels Vink beat Davidson, 6-1-6-2. In the ladies wheelchair doubles, De Groot and Grifoyen beat Kimiji and Montjane, 6-1-6-4. 
In the junior girls doubles, Samsonova and Kovakova beat Klugman and Lacey 6-4-7-5. In the girls junior singles, Nganwe beat Barton Kova 6-2-6-2. In the boys doubles, Philip and Volpita beat Jorich and Gia, 6-3, 6-3. And those were your other results from Sunday. All right, next one. Was Wimbledon a good tournament? It absolutely was. A-plus tournament from start to finish. The women's tournament was great. Overall, the women's tournament was much better than the men's tournament. The men's tournament was lacking a signature match until today. Until today, the signature men's match had been Murray-Sitsipas. That match is number two. The Djokovic-Alcaraz match today is absolutely number one. But even if the men's results weren't scintillating and whatnot, it was a great tournament. I loved it. And it was also a nice tournament for me personally got employed during the course of this tournament. That is a nice feeling. Always nice. A lot has happened over the last two weeks, both in life and in tennis. Was the media coverage good? The ESPN coverage was fine. I mean, they still do the same crap they always do. The commentators maybe were slightly less awful than they normally were. For what John McEnroe is capable of, he had a decent tournament. But it's going to take, you know, with 15 years of baked-in crappiness, it's going to take more than one slightly above-average tournament for John McEnroe to undo his image. But uh, he stayed away from some of the platitudes, I must admit. Only some of them. You know, normally he's at about a D minus level. Maybe he was about a, maybe he was uh, he was still below average. D plus for John McEnroe. Um, the Athletic is covering tennis now, and they had a really good article about uh, what the ball boys and ball girls have to do. Um, so go check that out on the Athletic if you've got that. Um. Next, what is coming up? For the pros, we're entering the summer vacation period. Um, The next big one is going to be in three weeks' time for Canada. Um, And then we're into that crunchy part of the calendar in August. Um, This podcast is going to be live on site from the 2023 Western and Southern Open. So... Um, that is definitely something for both me here in the booth and for you as a listener to look forward to. So yeah, live on site for Cincinnati. Um, in the short term, in the next three weeks, until Canada, there's only going to be one episode. Because um, we are definitely going to be taking a break here from the tennis for a couple of weeks. It's been a great, great run for Trips Tennis Talk. The numbers are growing. There's a lot of numbers. Um, We're still very, very small. But, you know, um, when I I last checked a few days ago, 
Wimbledon, the Wimbledon podcast had accrued over 100 downloads total. And for a little nothing podcast like this one that has no distribution, no coverage, it's literally word of mouth and individual texting to people that I know. For 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 a podcast like that to get to the triple digit level and at some point this year we're going to hit 1000 downloads that that is beginning to be a little bit of a, an achievement um and it's really nice to know that less than a year after starting this podcast um and you know with the intermittent coverage you know sorry about that but life happens you know over the course of that year to still get this is a is a big deal and part of that is because it's Wimbledon. Wimbledon breaks through in a way that other tournaments don't. If a casual fan knows a tennis tournament, they know Wimbledon. So maybe that juiced the numbers a little bit, but I'm not sure what the cause is. But definitely, if you've listened to this, and especially if you've listened to this podcast from start to finish through everything, um, thank you. You are a true believer, so I appreciate that. At some point, I would like to accept donations, so um, there's going to be an option for that at some point, I believe, that there's a strong chance of that happening. I'm not going to read ads on this podcast, I'm not going to put it behind a paywall, but I am looking at setting up the infrastructure for, for people to make donations if they want. My, my my only financial goal for this podcast, if, if, if this podcast made $14 a month, I'd be okay with that because this podcast costs $14 a month to make. So if, uh, if I didn't lose any money doing this, I think that would be a, a financial win for a show like this. So if you want to donate $14 to be my, like, ben- my single sole benefactor, that'd be great. If you just want to Donate me the value of a cup of coffee, five bucks. Think about all the stuff that I've done over the last couple of weeks. I I think this is my 16th podcast in 17 days. I I almost hit my daily number. I I had to skip one day, but for the 14 days of Wimbledon, I had 13 daily podcasts. Um, I did the 10 breakpoint episodes between the French Open and this one, and we have the, the the French Open wrap-up pod with Tammy and the Australian Open pod with Madeline. And uh, we've had Matt Zemek on, Zemek on the podcast this year. Medi wins Miami. That's a top five episode right now. There's a lot of stuff out there. This is our 70th episode. And if I stick to my schedule, um, uh, the U.S. Open wrap-up Megapod show is on track to be the 100th episode. So think about all the hours that I've taken to do this. Um, and if you've listened, you can show your appreciation for that by uh, sending me your five bucks. But I'm definitely asking for a cup of coffee-sized donation, if you would. But I'm going to do nothing beyond ask. At the moment, ads are not part of the plan for this. We're still too small for that, I think. In the next three weeks... Um, I do have one episode planned, and that is going to be a non-tennis episode. In a couple of days, on July 18th, we have a a video game book coming out by John Romero, who worked on some classic games that I really enjoy, 
and that book is called Doom Guy, Life in First Person. Um, it is a goal of mine as a little side project here. At some point over the next three weeks, probably closer to the end of that time, I'll be uh, dropping a, a podcast review of that book. Um, from time to time, I do like doing other subjects. I spoke to my friend Nate Davis this year about uh, WGI. Go back and check that out. So from time to time, I think it's totally within my right to uh, go off the path a little bit. But uh, So stay tuned for the Doom Guy review coming up at some point in July. And then uh, we'll be back for Tennis Talk in August. All right. You know, it's kind of difficult to end a three-hour pod quickly, but um, I guess that's what I'm going to have to do. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz is your new Wimbledon champion. All right, and um, thanks to all the people at Aragon Productions, you have been listening to Trip's Tennis Talk. This podcast was an Aragon Productions production. All right, everybody, here's a better way to end this. Before we go, I have to play this again, don't I? I mean, if you go back and look at the rap song the other day, Max on Carlos Future, all the lyrics that were in there, I wrote them kind of as a joke, but they ended up coming true. He did beat the Joker again, and he did stop the slam count temporarily and all that stuff, so... I think a perfect way to end this, the longest podcast in Trips Tennis Talk history, it has to end with an encore presentation of Max On, Carlos Future by Andre 3000. So we'll have that song play us out. Here it is. Yo, Grand Slams, titles Grand Slams, Grand Slams, titles Grand Slams, win the set, gotta win the set, chase a trophy, never chase a plate, Max on, rocket Max on, Max on, rocket Max on, Grand Slams, titles Grand Slams, chase a trophy, never chase a plate, two wins, champagne with my team, California to a whole nother domain, med 
from the top half, I am number one. And in the final, I will beat Joker again. Center court, looking like my house. This is mine, you get on a plane. My footwork, you can't deal with this. Ask the question, I'm gonna bust a move. Djokovic, 23 slams. That ain't nothing, I'll get 24. No more, cause I'm a liability. Hit the serve, boosting my count. Grand slams, titles, grand slams. Grand slams, titles, grand slams. Win the set, gotta win the set. Chase a trophy, never chase a play. Max on, rocket max on. Max on, rocket max on. Grand slams, titles, grand slams. Chase a trophy, never chase a play. Under go. Best I ever was. Yeah. All the shots I got, yeah. I beat you like I does. With my Rolex, got the Gemini. I got the bling, the game, the bank to succeed. I've got talent, and you don't. Will I ease up? No, I won't. It's got nothing on me. He's not very good. I'm as focused as they come. His brain is made of wood. When things go wrong, he gives up quick. I'm on him when it happens. I'm so good, it's sick. Don't have to grind, cause I got all the shots now. People in the stands see me and go, wow. My game is El Supreme, their game is bottom drawer. See, win, 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 win. It's good to be me. Grand slams, titles, grand slams. Grand slams, titles, grand slams. Win the set, gotta win the set. Chase a trophy, never chase a play. Max on, rocket max on. Max on, rocket max on. Grand slams, titles, grand slams. Chase a trophy, never chase a play. Max on, rocket max on. Max on, rocket max on. Max on, rocket max on. Max on. Soy tan bueno que puedo vencer a cualquiera sin siquiera intentarlo. Tradition.